This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everyone. A good uh, Thursday morning. You're almost there. One more day. And then you're sitting pretty, watching your Netflix, taking a breather. Cole, what are you going to be doing this weekend? Definitely taking a breather all weekend long. It's not often I have to wake up at uh, 6.30 every morning and come in here and spend a glorious morning with you, Jeff. But I'll need to recover. Well, we appreciate you, Cole. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for getting a small taste of what we here at the Matt Townsend Show do every single day. Every day. Can you believe it? Nope, not at all. Well, uh, we are once again Dr. Mattless, but he's had his surgery. I haven't checked in with him yet. I ought to. But uh, he's probably sitting pretty at home watching Netflix and taking a breather. Mm-hmm. So, and uh, I well deserved. I highly doubt he's celebrating Onion Rings Day um, because, oh goodness, for the past month or two, he hasn't been able to go anywhere near greasy foods. Um, did you know this? The origin of the onion rings is actually somewhat mysterious, but we do know. That in 1802, a recipe was published in The Art of Cookery Made Easy and Refined. This recipe describes a process of dipping half an inch of uh, onion rings dipped into a rather flavorful mixture of flour with creams and cheeses and then boiling them in a vat of lard. Is there a college student and ramen version of cooking made easy and refined? I guarantee you somebody's tried fried ramen noodles. Yeah. Um, but the the part that gets me that sells me is the vat of lard. Yeah, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Aren't you just on... supposed to drink the remains afterwards oh, too? Is that in the okay. same cookbook? Okay, I think we're gonna make people sick here. <laughs> Following on the heels of this was a suggestion to serve it with a sauce made of a mixture of mustard and butter. See, now that sounds the... great. Yeah, well, you lost me at the mustard. No, a good spicy mustard kind of thing going on with your onion ring. So are you of the opinion then that you could deep fry a tire and it would be good? Yeah. I mean, I'm wow. coming up. It's it's summertime around the Matt Townsend show, and I'll be going home to my county fair come August. And they deep fry everything under the sun, and I will be purchasing all of it. Illinois? Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania, that's right. Yep. Wow. What's your, what's your favorite deep fried item so I'm, that you've ever had? I'm pretty classic. I go stick with the Oreo maybe, but also mm. there's the the things that were healthy before you deep fried them, like the deep fried pickle and the deep fried cauliflower. <laughs> um, I'll be having some of those also. And then there's always something new. There's like hmm. three or four deep fried stations and you got to go to all of them. Some of them specialize in the dessert. Some of them specialize in other. Um, and some of them bring things new to the table every year. Wow. Terry, what's the greatest deep fried item you've ever had? I have no idea. Have you had something deep fried at a county fair? No. No? I've had things deep fried, but I wouldn't like put them on the list of greatest. So, huh. Just because, you know, they're just kind of breaded food. Yeah. But yeah, I don't go to county fairs much, so I don't really. I've seen the deep fried Twinkie or the deep fried banana, and it's just, mm-hmm. I don't know. You Maybe know, a funnel cake, which is just deep fried oh, air. Cake. It all just seems like a road too far. You know what, though? You're asking for a heart attack. I'm young. I can handle it. That's what you say until all of a sudden you're like, can't breathe. 
You just can't beat a good old deep fried thigh or drumstick from JFC. Mm. Yeah. The original recipe. Don't get the extra crispy because it's just too much too much skin and it kind of just cakes to the roof of your mouth and yeah, and then you end up uh having problems like Matt Townsend. See, I usually just eat food. Okay. You, you tend to like experience food. Well, I experience it, but I usually eat it too fast. And then you remember the experience where I just kind of that was that was a that was a meal, move on to the next one. See, if I could do that, then I uh I wouldn't be gaining weight. So Probably. Onion, Onion Ring Day was created <laughs> to be appreciated, Terry. I know, but this is I mean, my wife and I've gone to like the, the super nice restaurant. Yeah. Where once you end up paying for the meal, you could have gone to the restaurant you really wanted to go to and bought like five different entrees or something. You know oh, yeah. I mean? So you go to the, the super expensive restaurant. They do something creative with your food. I'm just looking at this like, what am I paying for? You know, I don't, I don't appreciate the artistic end of – the chefery is the what was the book called? The cookery. Oh yes, the so cookery. The, the art sh- of cookery. The, the chefs. You, you, my wife loves the food, the Food Network, mm-hmm. and they're like decorating their plates, and every one of them makes a sauce, and then they splatter it all over the plate. And you if, call it a drizzle. Yeah, as if everything, every drip all over is artistic. It's like oh, you just messed up your plate there, but okay. Um, and wouldn't it be better <laughs> to have like. Like just have like a, a pile of the sauce you like dip over here rather than just it's all over the plate and oh and then they try to make some artistic flower looking thing out of some fruit you're like just just give me some food to eat don't play with it see you do think about food well I do in the sense when you're paying ninety bucks for a Cornish game hen you which want is utility after it and I'm looking at it like what did you do to this bird and then there was really nothing on the bird to even eat it was like a chicken by the end of it it was essentially a chicken nugget worth of meat on this oh, yeah. bird that you purchased so I was like not, See, not, not impressed I thought of one other thing that I think more about than food is how much I pay for that food like you said well, we, we went to a, a barbecue joint one time we were not happy with the fact that we left there spending $100. It was up right. in Park City, so I guess that justifies the price because, sure. you know. You've got to pay for the land. Yeah. Well, you know, and they have to they have to ship it all the way up there to Park right. City. It's, you know, 45 minutes extra. So <laughs> From the airport. Wow. Yeah. So I, <sighs> I, I'm more of the pile of food. Mm-hmm. Like you go to certain restaurants, they have like a skillet, which just sort of like a pile of, of food in there, or you get a uh, the bowl. Oh, yeah. Like, and you, know, you can choose what you put in your yeah, bowl, and then you, they you, just throw it on there yeah, and it's keep just, coming back it's and keep just, coming it's back. It's just a big pile of food. My wife will make a, uh, like, chili or something, and it's just – just throw it all in. It's great. <laughs> I, I'm not really particular on the presentation. Just make sure it tastes good. Sure. Yeah, so – well, I've got a couple of interesting stories that we can talk about later in in regards to consumption and, and prices, and it'll be fun. But uh, let's head over to you, Terry, and find out what's going on around the rest of the country. The FBI is investigating a, the stabbing of a police officer at Bishop Airport in Flint, Michigan, as, as terrorism. David Gellius, a special agent in charge, says the assailant later identified as 49-year-old Canadian Armour R. Futawi, uh, stabbed Lieutenant Jeff Neville in the neck and yelled Allah Akbar as he mentioned the wars in Iraq, Afghanistan, and Syria. Gellio said that while the investigation is still in its early stages, there's no indication that the attack was part of a larger plot. Gellio added that the assailant has been interviewed by the FBI and is cooperating. 
The uh, police officer who was stabbed is in stable condition. Tropical Storm Cindy is churning slowly towards the U.S. Gulf, where millions of residents are expecting heavy rain and potential flash flooding. It made landfall last evening. It's pretty mm-hmm. bad. At least 17 million people are under a tropical warm storm warning as of last night. Now it's more like a tropical storm reality as it's hit land. Yeah. Um, so uh, what? Texas, Alabama, Florida border, kind of all right through that area of the Gulf. Uh, Louisiana, southern Mississippi, southern Alabama, western portions of Florida, Panhandle, they're all in the uh, the uh, rain, I guess, storm. Because that's really what it comes down to is an intense storm. Not, not yeah. a hurricane, but a tropical uh, storm that's come up, come in, and they're saying they, that it's pushing all the water in, and so flooding all across the coast. You'll see that in the next few days as the people, I guess, start drying out once the storms Sheesh. subside. So, an extreme heat wave in the southwest U.S. made flights uh, against a uh, a fight against a series of wildfires more difficult Wednesday, including ones that had destroyed at least four homes in Arizona. Uh, temperatures in parts of Arizona, California, and Nevada soared to nearly 120 degrees this week, creating problems for firefighters. In California, two firefighters were treated for heat exhaustion as they battled a blaze in the San Bernardino Mountains east of Los Angeles. Um, when did they do the? When's the? What do they call? What are the winds? The, the Santa Santa Ana winds. When did that happen? The fall, spring. Gosh, yeah, one of those. One of those, but it just <laughs> makes it worse. But yeah, so they're. Dealing with fires, it's hot. Oh my gosh! You got people. There's been a, like three or four deaths so far because of heat-related situations. Wow! So you know, drink your water, be careful, and you can't fly in Arizona either. May I think they backed off on that? Yeah, I think they're able to. I think it might be a little less. Like they were looking for maybe 110 versus 120, so maybe a little cooling. Yeah. For the Arizona area. area oh, there. that 10 degrees, you can really feel it. And finally, an interna- international gun smuggling scheme allegedly went right through a library that straddles the U.S.-Canadian border. Federal prosecutors say Alexis Valikos of Montreal was brought to the uh, Vermont, was brought to Vermont to face charges after he allegedly took 100 guns across the border to Canada. Authorities say the Haskell Free Library was the key drop-off point. The library sits on the international border with half the building in Derby Line, Vermont, the other half in Stazenstead, Canada. The library's entrance is in Vermont, and the Canadians can visit the library without going through a port of entry. Prosecutors say that Annette Wexler and a co-conspirator brought the guns in uh, from Florida, hid them, they got them from Florida, brought them to Vermont, right? So okay. they hid them in a backpack and left them in the bathroom at the library. This happened all six years ago. Ah. So they come into the library, leave the backpack in the bathroom. Uh, Valakos came in from the Canadian side. He picked up the guns and then exited into Canada without going through customs with his you know, backpack. And uh, so he denied the charges in court. Wexler, the woman involved, pled guilty and will be sentenced next month. I'm guessing part of Wexler's deal is she's telling them all about how this worked. Hmm. So he can deny all he wants, but they've got all the information, more, more than likely. Did you so, say yeah. Haskell-free library or Hassle-free library? It's called the, where'd it go? The Haskell, H-A-S-K-E-L-L, huh. free library. I wish there was such thing, such a thing as a hassle-free library. They're pretty hassle-free if you don't have any problems. Well, I mean, I was just there, tried to open an account, 
And I was told by one lady I need two pieces of identification or two two bills, yeah. which seemed strange to me. Prove your address. So I had to uh, sit there with my rowdy children while my wife tried to find me another bill online. Meanwhile, this lady disappears. Hmm. Can't help me anymore. Another lady comes back and she's like, oh, you only need one. Hmm. Yeah. So you're saying a bureaucratic process has problems. I, you know, I was very, was very disappointed in this free service that made me wait for ten minutes. Well, it's not free. You pay your taxes, right? Um, no comment. Okay, just I'm just pointing things out. They're all paid by taxes. <laughs> anyway, that's wow. why my wife. She goes, "Won't you get a library card?" I'm like, "No, you have one." She goes, "But if you had one, it'd be easier." And I go, "For who? <laughs> I'll just use yours. It's fine." <laughs> But they also have the summer reading program, so uh, my daughters are going to get ice cream coupons and movie coupons, so uh, I'll be taking all of those, but they're always holding like, hostage. It's always like a coupon for them, and then you have to buy the tickets. Yeah. You. So actually, it's a charge, but that's fine. Don't, yeah, look, but- don't look at it that way. Don't look at it the way I look at it. Like that's just going to cost me more money. Well, I'm going to pick him up on the way on the way home uh, from work today, and I'm going to say, girls, great news, you have two – you have one coupon for ice cream. <laughs> Just one. Just one. <laughs> Where'd you get yours, Dad? Don't worry about it. Details. You guys need to I've share I've been reading my whole life, right? I never got any of those. Anyway, um, man, I would not want to be in Arizona right now. And, you know, we complain a lot about the temperature here in the studio, but 120 degrees, so hot that an airplane well, can't. We we complain that it's cold in the studio. I've never complained that it's cold in the studio. Usually when Matt's here, we pointed out last last time we were talking about this when he was here, he was wearing a jacket. He's always a, wearing a jacket. It was a little cold for him, and so he wears a little – it's like he's got his shawl. Yes. And he's ready to find a recliner and just you know live out the remaining days type of thing. But it's, come on, Matt. Stand up. Move around. He's already it's got one foot out the door. Yeah. He's ready to retire. I mean, he's not here today. Well, well, I guess he's got an excuse. That's different. He's Yeah. Speaking of that, we wish him well. He had his surgery yesterday. I haven't heard from him, so I can only assume the best. But, you know, he doesn't really communicate with me all that well. <laughs> Have you yeah, heard anything sure. from him? No, no. No. I wouldn't expect to, though. What's but he, he going to say? I'm sitting on my couch? He's also very much, when I'm gone, I'm gone, which is good. Don't you think that's better than being gone but still being here? Yeah. Yeah. Because then, then people take advantage of that. They, they email you things. Oh, they yeah. They talk to you. Hey, had an idea for it. No, leave him alone. Yeah. Like when, when I was going to be gone for a week and a half, Matt was like, hey, why don't you put in like 20 hours of work? And I'm like, yeah. why don't you let me take my vacation the way I want to? <laughs> the other okay? side of it was like, maybe he doesn't want to do anything. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, that, that, he was building that off of the fact when I went on my baby sabbatical. I worked because I was sitting in a hospital room for a couple of days and I was sitting at home and I mean you – at that point I had one kid. You have two. Mm, three. And three. Yeah. Well, now three, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Three but, now, I mean, but yeah. The one the time, kid, yeah. pretty much mom takes care of the infant. Yeah. You know, you help but seriously it's it's kind of her deal. You just kind of corral the other ones away and even just with my one kid, I had all this time just hanging out so I, I worked basically. But I always tend to – working for us is you surf the internet and look for things. Mm-hmm. And I would normally do that. 
because that's yeah. how I use the internet. I get on and look for interesting things, and it just happens they all coincide with the show. Exactly. Whereas I, I was, I point out to people, you find an interesting article and you go, huh, and then move on. I go, huh, what's his email? Let's get him on the show. It's kind of a different aspect to using the yeah. internet and looking up you know, articles and seeing when something's interesting, we can actually use it for something rather than yeah. it's just something you read. By the way, I can't tell you how guilty I feel. Like if I... So I I work here and then I go home and I do work from home and if I were to just be here and you know I looked up some random thing for a few minutes wouldn't think twice about it no. but when you're looking up some random thing at home and either your spouse walks in on you and it looks like you're not doing work or you can hear your kids crying in the background you th- start thinking maybe I ought to go help but then you think no I'm working I'm working right right it's difficult it's a hard line no, really. to <laughs> I, I hear you don't some, feel guilty. I hear things happening around the house, and I just – like I have a pair of headphones <laughs> that I can connect to my television through Bluetooth, and I just go, I can't hear you. And, just oh. and I don't feel bad about that. My wife will do that occasionally too. She'll well, just yeah. be like, you know, I think he can handle that one, and she just sort of slides into the room and shuts the door. Oh, yeah, or the bathroom. Yeah. The bathroom is a great hiding spot yeah. for husbands and wives alike. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, we've we've done plenty of stories here on the show about people that get frustrated when their food is not served to them uh, either the way that they like it or in a timely fashion. Or if maybe there's a food that somebody really wants that the restaurant or establishment does not have on hand. And usually this will happen at a place where you're spending a little bit more to get and, and you can expect that kind of service. Actually, every story – usually when we share these types of stories, it's like Wendy's or McDonald's. Oh. And, I mean, here's another example. So luckily it wasn't anything like mace because we've done several mace stories where people are getting maced for this type Aww. of thing. Police in central Texas say a woman fell into a foul mood when a fast food restaurant took too long in delivering her chicken nuggets, and she called 911 to complain. Oh, Sounds like an emergency. Waco Police Sergeant W. Patrick Swanton said Monday the woman wanted the nuggets given to her for free because of the delay. Swanton says the woman was parked in the drive-thru lane at McDonald's or McFlonald's. Uh, actually, this is the story, so we can say the real name. Refusing to budge and being confrontational with employees as vehicles lined up behind her. A restaurant employee called 911 on Friday night to have police move the woman along, and officers were responding when the woman also made her call to 911 to complain. The unidentified woman was given her money back and told to leave without her nuggets. Oh, this is one of those things where I'm sure the the uh, employees were the first to call, and then she said, "Well, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna call them I too." I can do that too. Uh, yeah, oh, this is just pathetic. What do you do when you? I mean, McDonald's messes up orders sometimes, Jeffrey. What What's your general reaction to that? Uh, I'm nice about it, and yeah. I, you know, there is a. <laughs> They do make mistakes. We mm-hmm. all make mistakes. So why would you get mad at somebody for doing something that you are likely to do yourself? And you know? the extent of the mistake is usually maybe $2 tops. 
I know, right? I can swallow that and just drive through the drive-thru. Yeah, their nuggets are what, you like you said, a dollar, two dollars. Now, if you get all the way home and they've forgotten something, it like you said, it's just not worth it to go back and, oh, no. and make a fuss. It was McDonald's. Yeah. Yeah. You well, live, people. Yeah. Anyway, here's another interesting one for you. Oh... No, we're going to save that because we've got uh, we've got a movie clip that goes along with that. We have been talking a lot about flights, people not being able to fly in and out of Arizona because of the extreme heat, 120 degrees. Mm-hmm. I, I can't even fathom 120 degrees, um, being in 120 degree weather anyway. So passengers on an easy jet flight were horrified when the pilot asked them to vote on whether to take off. As there was only a 50-50 chance of both engines working. Huh. The stunned holiday makers were on the tarmac at Malaga Airport, Spain, when the pilot asked for a show of hands as to whether they should take off. The unnamed pilot told passengers there was a high chance that only one engine would be working, but the request, which came after the flight had already been delayed for 40 hours, left one exhausted passenger so traumatized that he threw up. Good thing they have those vomit bags there on the planes. They came prepared. Yes. At this point, uh, there was a bit of a mutiny on the plane, an awful lot of shouting and people crying and demanding to get off, according to one passenger. The worst thing was we had to wait another hour or two before they would actually let us off the plane. I don't think you can do that. I don't think as a pilot you can give people the choice. Do you guys – here's here's what's going on. Uh, do you want to take off? seems like that is a lose-lose but situation. But it's a democracy, Jeffrey. He was just trying to let the people voice their opinions. Right. But you can just imagine the higher-ups in that company sweating over that announcement. It seems like this isn't a democracy-type situation. This is a uh, maybe – a regulations decision, like if our plane isn't working correctly, then we're just not going to take off. Yeah, it's we would we, we you know we've been waiting for forty hours. People are upset. People are tired. They want to get home, but you know you got to be safe. Yes. Mm. Well, I mean, would you rather be in an airplane that uh, when it's one hundred twenty degrees outside, or would you rather be in an airplane? That uh, only half of the engines are working. I, you know, I get a little nervous anytime I'm in any kind of an airplane in perfect, beautiful conditions and with both working engines. And airplanes just, they don't make sense to me. They shouldn't, that, that giant hunk of steel with all those people in it just should not be able to get off the ground. I don't know the science. I don't believe it. I don't trust it. I'm scared. Yeah. Neither. There, you know, Ignorance is bliss, as they say. <laughs> um, now, it would have been wrong for this pilot to say, we're just we're going to take off and not, you know, knowing that half the engines weren't working. Right. But people don't want to know. Like, can you imagine how terrified you'd be if the captain accidentally kept his hand on the PA system and was basically talking about all the problems that were wrong with the plane? That would be scary. But yeah, I don't know. I might do that than the uh, – that might seems like it might be safer than trying to take off in 120-degree weather. Probably. And to be fair, I have a 100% success rate of going up in a plane and coming down safely. So I have no reason That's to be – That's true. 
afraid of flight in whatsoever. Um, can I, I can I tell you a secret too? Please do. I also have a hundred percent success rate. Wow. See, planes are I've safe. I've got a feeling. I, you never know, but I've got a feeling that Terry does too. Hundred percent. Yep. It's interesting. I mentioned all these alarms on my phone. I've probably got like 16 or so, and they're always there. And every single day I've got to hear them go off, and uh, and it annoys my wife greatly. I've got three alarms for the morning so that uh, I make sure I don't oversleep. I've got send a thank you card to so-and-so. I've got... Uh, Write a, write a positive review for the movers that helped us move back in November. I've got, I've got a reminder to uh, send somebody a gift. I've got a reminder to contact three different people to get a business address change. I probably shouldn't say that one out loud. Um, to give my daughter some medicine. To, uh, to do push-ups. And uh, you'll notice that that alarm is turned off. And has not, has not been turned on for some time. Uh, journal at 8.45 p.m. has also been turned off mm. and has been turned off for some time. And take out the trash every Tuesday. See, I have least? about three or four alarms starting at 6.30 and ending at 6.49, which is the last possible moment that oh, I could yeah. roll out of my bed and make it here at 7. Yeah. Um, and then yesterday when I was doing my laundry, I forgot to set my alarms, which means my clothes were practically dry by the time I remembered they were done in the washer. Yeah. I put them in the dryer and then I forgot that for an extra two or three hours after yeah. As At that well. point, you needed to just do another cycle in the wash. Yeah, probably. Yeah. So it was my gym clothes anyway. Like I wasn't too concerned about mildew in the pockets yeah. of my shorts or whatever. Yeah. So you know, not only do I have to have an alarm for everything so I don't forget, um, but let's say somebody calls me and leaves a message or uh, sends me a text message. If I don't leave that message unopened, like if I listen to it and then don't take care of it right away, I'm gonna forget about it. And uh, yeah. So. I rely very heavily on my phone. Maybe I need to go back to uh, tying some string on my fingers. There you go. Maybe That's some an idea. post-it notes on my head. I wouldn't forget that, right? Draw it backwards on your forehead. How do you remember stuff, Terry? Uh, I have to set alarms. My wife, we have a shared calendar on my phone, and she mm-hmm. just puts everything in there and stuff pops up. You'll get it. Like there was a uh, – you have a baby. You have – 400 doctor's appointments you have to go to. And once she went back to work, that fell to me in the afternoon to take the kid to the doctor. And I totally fell asleep one day. And she calls me like, was it like 15 minutes before the uh, the appointment? She's like, you're remembering you go to the doctor, right? And I'm all, you know, you, she, the phone woke me up out of sleep, right? So I'm trying to act <laughs> like I sound awake and I'm really not awake. I'm like, yeah, yeah, no problem. We're heading out the door right now as I'm scrambling through the house trying to get shoes on and get the kid. And Yeah. We made it. It's very difficult to tr- to sell the fact that you uh, – Didn't just wake up? Right. Yeah. Yeah. 
It's like me waking up in the middle of the night and just, you know, saying something that's totally nonsensical to my wife, but I'm trying to sell it. And I'll be like, I know I'm awake. I know exactly what I'm saying. And then there will be like a 10-second pause, and then it hits me like, oh, I am asleep. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, And then you're, you're kind of in that fog as oh, you're yeah. trying to function. And I mean, I mean this was – I went from like zero to 60 though in that situation because the one thing I, she needs from me uh-huh. is knowing that I can handle – this kind of stuff. Sure. Even though she's at work. Yes. Then she doesn't have to worry about it. That the stress of those kind of things are off her plate. She can focus on what she needs to worry about. And me who's home taking a nap can actually, you know, handle being a parent and being responsible this way. And yeah. it doesn't help when you call up and I'm like, Hello, what? <laughs> <laughs> so I scared my wife right after our baby was born because I had one of those moments and they always seem to coincide with the birth of a child. Yes. Like I'll wake up Freaking out like, ah, we got to feed the baby or we got to do that. And then I'll say something that doesn't make any sense. Uh, and just the other week, I uh, we had the baby in the bassinet mm. just for the first couple of weeks because my wife was feeling pretty weak, couldn't get up, and she needed my help to get the baby. So um, I go over there, and I'm holding him. And according to my wife, as I'm holding our child, I say something like, why do I have a baby in my arms? So she, at, at that point, very wisely reaches over and says, I'll take that baby because you don't want a sleeping person standing up holding your child. Right. So <laughs> luckily she got him and it was safe and yeah. But I once I'm asleep, I'm asleep. Anyway, uh, let's do this. Let's take a break. When we come back, we're going to have some more interesting stories and topics when we return. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You know, uh, we here at the Matt Townsend Show, we voice our opinion on on just how early we have to get up each day to do the show. And hopefully it doesn't come across as complaining. Some days it it may be more than others. Other than all the complaining. Yeah. (laughs) Mostly for Matt, which we can say because he's not here in the room with us. But I would say that to his face, too. Um, So I can honestly say, even though I do get up early every day, Terry and Matt get up even earlier because they live farther away, uh, I'm not a morning person. I'm really not. If I were, I would get up a little earlier, exercise, maybe do some reading before I come into work. But uh, yeah, never happens. Never happens. I'm not a morning person. But Terry, you've got some news for us that maybe suggests I can become a morning person. I doubt it. I think think what we're going to have to approach this at is we do this. It's called How to Trick Yourself into Being a Morning Person. Okay, so there's there's, trickery involved. There's different approaches. It's more of a mindset. Okay. You have to like, we're going to do this. This is how you make it tolerable and how you prepare yourself for the shock of morning. And I don't know if any of this is actually a real thing. And seeing as I I do get up early and I've been doing it for 11, 12 years now Mm -hmm. on this schedule, it's kind of – I told someone that one day, and they're like, really? And they go, yeah, I've never seen a sunrise. I'm always at work by the time the sun comes <laughs> So you're up, probably so. the type of person that could never sleep in even if you wanted to. No. Because so your body's – When I hit the weekend or you get that, like we're coming up on the 4th of July, which is yeah. on a Tuesday, 
It should be on Mondays. Just give us the weekend. But fine, I understand. Day happens when the day happens. Mm -hmm. Um, But I'm going to wake up at 6 a.m. or Mm. earlier because that's when I wake up. There's nothing I can do. The only way I can sleep in is if I stay up later the night before. Okay. And then that just kind of messes you up your clock and your timing and everything for the rest of the week. So that week will be a little rough. Hmm. But this, this person writes, it goes, on my path towards morning personhood. Yes. Says, I began adopting some simple practices that make getting up and out of bed upon my alarms first. Yes, the first sound a little less harrowing. Okay. So we're talking about morning personhood. Hmm. Yeah. So the first one is romanticize your morning. Okay. Meaning this is uh, some positive manifestation type work. He says, if you work long hours and think of your sleep as sacred, try to begin thinking of your mornings in the same way as crucial and critical to you time. This is for you. And like you talked about, get up, read a book, maybe exercise. She's talking about those types of activities to prepare you for the day. Okay. Instead of me where I just wake up, get dressed, get in the car, drive away. See, it seems like the only thing that works for me, though, is to have such an annoying sound that I have to get up and turn it off. Now, what she's talking about is have an activity you kind of look forward to. It motivates you to get out of bed. It also gets your brain working, get your body functioning, as, and then start your day. You know what activity I look forward to the most at 6.30? Sleep. Sleep. Yeah. So that's why you know, I'm like, eh. But you know that that's not going to work when you're the type of person that would rather stay in bed and not get sleep, but at least you're in bed instead of going to the bathroom, which you really need to do. Well, there's that. I yeah. mean, there's, there's processes. There's things that <laughs> need to happen. But, I mean, if you can take time to read a book. I've done this at times, and it's more just to wake you up okay. instead of try to stumble out the door and drive when you're still asleep. So, yeah. Uh, the second one is have a playlist. She's, she's talking about music, one of the best, perhaps universally helpful ways to make getting up more enjoyable. Craft a stellar morning playlist. And, uh, you know, my per- she goes, my personal approach is to start with something quiet that builds slowly so that in a few minutes the tempo is picked up and I'm feeling more awake. So mm. use the music to kind of – stimulate you to being in a more awake in the morning. You know, Bohemian Rhapsody starts quiet and, you know, builds. My problem is the entire house is asleep. How am I going to start just playing music? Exactly. And I always develop an aversion to whatever song is set as my alarm. Right. Gonna, I don't want to have to hate Bohemian Rhapsody because I mentally attach okay. it to I have to wake up now. Normally I would agree, but I don't think it's possible to hate Bohemian Rhapsody. If I hear it every day at 6.30. This is kind of how I thought this list was going to go was on paper is one thing and practice is another. Sure. She says, uh, read something out loud. Many of us are already in the habit of reading emails, scrolling through Instagram, checking Facebook first thing in the morning from bed. Though this can help get your wheels turning, what really would do that is reading out loud. Hmm. Because you would – it's a whole different uh, mental – Exercise. It's one thing just to read it, in your, you know, to yourself. But out loud, you have to form the words. You have to get your voice together. And I, I used to, uh, with this job, you're speaking. Obviously, I, I used to drive to work like like screaming, trying yeah. to just get my oh mouth my to goodness. work and try to sing songs, do that kind of thing, just to wake your 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 mouth up, wake your body up, and that kind of thing. Again, I don't know if that works for everyone. It's kind of weird. Probably do it in a car by yourself. Make sure no one's staring at you because it looks kind of kind of weird as so, you're just yelling out loud. Yeah. As far as the reading goes, I would either have to stand up or I'd have to have like a chair that had, you know, spikes coming out of it. Oh, okay. To 
keep me alert. Nice. The third <laughs> one that she has here is leave yourself no choice. Nothing does doing – she says noting uh, – that's a weird phrase. I don't know what – I don't even know if she just wrote English in the first part. Of she was asleep she says, when she wrote says maybe it's time this. for some tough love. Place your alarm on the other side of the room. Drink a giant glass of water before you go to bed to wake up and you just have to go to the restroom. You know? That so, can't keep me down. Now, people do the alarm on the other side of the room – and I, I used to, when I was a kid, I had a basketball alarm clock that would mm-hmm. go off, and you'd throw it across the room at the wall. Awesome. It, you get so much energy out of just throwing that, <laughs> it woke you up. That's a great idea. Because you're See, like, yeah, could get work. even with the alarm clock, and then by the time you did it, you're awake. But yeah. my problem is you'd throw it, and because it really wasn't that well-crafted, it didn't turn off. Yeah. So you bounce mm. this thing off the wall, and it's still beeping. So you still have to get out of bed. I do have to put my alarm on the other side of the room, and I am motivated to get up and turn it off because I have children that, for some reason, love waking up uh, between 5.30 and 6.30 and bugging my wife. So there is that motivation. I have four alarms set in the morning. So I'm always up on the first one, but if I sleep through that one, the first one is radio set to static. Oh, my right? goodness. That That's going to get you. And static just instantly pop out of it. What's going on? You know. And then the, st- the second one would be an alarm and then my phone. And then so I, I set all these different alarms so that I have like all these fail saves because we're kind of in a job where the show starts when it starts. If you're not here, yeah. the show's still starting. <laughs> so you kind of need to be here to kind of catch that moment to be on the air. Yeah. So, um, Leave your so we did that one. If you want a real peek into like what a radio person's life is, that was it. Yeah. Being able to be woken up by the emergency sound of radio static, static, you're like, is the most radio person the air, thing. Yeah. You know what would be great? A great uh, sounder for your alarm is just get Matt Townsend to do a voiceover of. Uh, well, uh, it's seven o'clock, and uh, Terry South is not here right now, right. so we're just gonna or, or just yeah. his top of the morning to you. That thing that he would always does. freak you out. I'd be like, wait a second. Yeah. <laughs> um, the next one is make your bed. Says hmm. it'll be much harder to crawl back under those covers once you're out of the bed if you just made the bed, or if there's somebody still in the bed. Right. And and my <laughs> my problem with that is doesn't matter if it's made or not. I'll just lay back down on the bed. Oh, yeah. Right? So. Yeah, my wife, if you make the bed and then lay on top of the sheets, she is not having it. No. You can't do that. That and the other thing is not the whole, and the, not the whole family doesn't get up at the same time. So yeah, if yeah. someone's still using the bed, you can't really make it with them in it. It's kind of rude. I love how Jim Gaffigan uh, says his wife gets on his case for not making the bed. She's like, why don't you make the bed? And he says, for the same reason I don't tie my shoes after I take them off. Right. You know, I plan on getting back in the bed as soon as possible. <laughs> she goes on to say, uh, open the windows, let let natural light Already in. Already done. Except it's, oh, dark 30 when I wake up. So it and it's really so hot. So chances are you're All probably... year round. All year round. Yeah. It's dark. It's hmm. nothing. I mean, other, if there's a full moon, it looks kind of creepy because you got that moonlight coming through. But that's about it. There's no, like, natural light. Yeah, yeah. we just passed the longest day of the year. So if there wasn't sunlight yesterday when yeah. you woke up, <laughs> you don't have much of a there's chance. There's no light ever. Uh, stretch it out. Get up and stretch. Get the blood flowing. When you're struggling to wake up, you can manage to get on your feet, throw down a, a few sun salutations and toe touches and all those kinds of yoga-esque type moves that stretch you out and get you moving and you know but i mean i think you normally do that you wake up and you just go ah you stretch out anyways so stretching out makes me more tired does it yeah why well if i stretch out in bed anyway we can go on to the The whole point is get out of bed right (laughs) and it says take your time you got to plan 
so you're not in a rush because you, if you're not fully uh, have all your faculties together when you wake up, rushing isn't going to help the situation. So plan it out. Mm-hmm. Make sure that uh, you you know you're not maniacally rushing around. The key to any morning person is to proactively decide to enjoy your morning. And this cannot be done if you're scrambling to get out the door. So do yourself a favor. Set your alarm earlier than you think. You maybe maybe prepare whatever bag you need to take the night before. Stuff like that. Lay your clothes out. That's kind yeah. of the things I do. Um, and then treat yourself. Just think of what you'd like your morning to be about. And then craft your AM ritual around that idea. Indulge in something that makes you happy, whether this means taking a nice hot shower, eating a big breakfast, or reading the paper. Do it. Make the time to do it so that you can get out the door on time. But all those things will help you wake up better. See, I feel like if this, if if we woke up maybe an hour and a half, two hours later, all of these would be fantastic ideas. Right. Because I'm not going to make like a big breakfast sandwich at 530 in the morning. That's right. Which was kind of my point was I think all of this stuff doesn't work for us, but it'd be fun to talk about it. You see, these are the types of things that we do each and every day to come here and put on a great show for you. The stuff that we do, uh, you know, it's as if we are dolling ourselves up for you, spending hours doing that, except uh, usually we're in a rush to get here. Anyway, hopefully uh, I can take some of those ideas and trick myself into becoming a morning person. And we are going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to continue the fun here on The Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good Thursday morning, everyone. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. This is Jeff Simpson filling in for Dr. Matt and uh, joined, of course, with uh, Terry South and Cole Wissinger. We just got a text from Dr. Matt saying that the surgery went well, and uh, he hopes to be back real soon. So again, keep sending all those positive tweets, and if you have his number, I guess you could text him. Uh, we won't give out that number. But, uh, 801. Oh, never mind. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, we're happy to hear that he's doing well, and uh, hopefully soon he can start indulging in some onion rings, because today is Onion Rings Day. And we were sharing some stories earlier about some of the deep-fried things that we've had. I, for a a period of time, lived in Russia, and the idea of all-you-can-eat is a foreign concept to Russians, I think. It's very much an American thing. Um, Yeah, go figure. Yeah. (laughs) And we did did find this one place— that had a concept that I was very much a fan of. I didn't actually, as it turns out, care for. I didn't care for the food all that much. But you t- you took a bowl and you filled it with as much meat as you possibly could. You could mm. Put anything you want in there. There's meat. There's rice. There's all sorts of fixings and everything. You put as much of it as you can in a bowl. You pay five bucks, I think, is what it was. And then you give it to the cook, and they cook whatever's in your bowl, and then they. Put it back in your bowl and you get to eat it. Does that work for you? Oh, yeah. Oh, you, yeah. You end up with a bowl of stuff, which yeah. is my favorite form of food. 
<laughs> bullet. So the the the, the JFC bowl is that uh... that would work? Okay, it's just a bowl of food. You got potatoes <laughs> and the corn, and the, you just throw it all together. Because I mean, <laughs> it's nice to have a plate and everything's all partitioned off, and it's all like this is here, this is... no, no, just put it all together. Yeah, you know, and then you, you one you don't have multiple plates. Sometimes when you try to have like. Even like dessert, just toss it in on top. No, I'm kidding. It's all going but, the same place, right? You, you get a rice bowl or something from some restaurant. I love that because it's rice and then just pile of food on top. Yeah. yeah. So in college, there was another restaurant that we found. This was in Idaho. They had kind of a similar concept. They would. It was a Chinese restaurant. They would give you a clamshell case. They'd give you a, a styrofoam bowl with a lid and then a styrofoam cup. Whatever you could cram into those containers, you could take with you. And I can't remember what the price was. Uh, So I went there with my five roommates, and we even had, you know, tricks that we were using. Like in the cup, we would put some meat and then fill all the empty spaces with like a sauce or with rice. And that those containers were jam-packed. We took it home and we watched that documentary, Supersize Me, <laughs> which kind of seemed uh, wrong. So as you ate that food, you watched the show about basically not eating that food. And it was delicious. Of course. So the six of us could not finish these containers. We had leftovers. And uh, I recall, I think before I left uh, that school, the restaurant was no longer in business. Yeah, it seems like a business plan that's meant to fail. So take as much I was as you a huge can fit fan. in. Yeah, oh, of course. Yeah. Yeah. And in oh, a college town, that would work really well. Oh, yeah. Except the kids would do what you did and figure out a way to try to get more. Yeah. Yeah. You probably have to limit the size of the container. Oh, I loved it. I'm just, I'm in heaven just thinking about it. Anyway, Terry, uh, any other news that we should be worried about around the rest of the country? Russian hackers targeted election systems in 21 U.S. states during last year's campaign, said a U.S. official. Jeanette Monfra of the Department of Homeland Security refused to identify the states during her testimony before the Senate panel yesterday, citing confidentiality agreements, but she added there was no evidence to suggest actual vote ballots were altered in the election hack. Ms. Manfred, the department's acting deputy undersecretary of cybersecurity, testified on Wednesday before the Senate Intelligence Committee, which is investigating Russia's alleged meddling in the 2016 election. As of right now, we have evidence that election-related systems in 21 states were targeted, she told the panel. She said uh, Department of Homeland Security still had confidence in the U.S. voting system because they are fundamentally resilient. Both Arizona and Illinois last year confirmed that their voter registration systems had been attacked by hackers before the election. We would have gotten away with it, too, if it wasn't for those meddling Russians. Maybe. Does that apply here? No, no, not really. Okay. Basically, <laughs> they're, what they're saying is each because we don't have like an interconnected system throughout the U.S., uh-huh. each state runs their own voting system. Mm-hmm. And because of that non-connection, it was able to stop the uh, people from actually gaining access. Hmm. As you know, they would if it was a huge network across the whole U.S. Right. So yeah. Just because of the way we have it set up, and each state runs their own system, makes it tougher to actually get in and influence. But uh, you can, you know, throw stuff on Facebook that confuses people, which is kind of what they're talking you about. Would never they, do that. Eh, Come they, on. they did. It was fun. Uh, actually, everyone was doing it. And they just <laughs> jumped in the party. That's kind of how they're. That's how the story is turning out now. The Wall Street Journal fired its chief foreign affairs correspondent on Wednesday after he was exposed discussing a business venture with a source for Hod Asma. 
not 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 ath not not the not the okay. breathing problem, but A Z I M A. So Azima, Azima, Azima. Farad Azima offered reporter Jay Solomon a ten percent stake in a company in 2015. This, according to the Associated Press, two of uh, Azima's partners said Solomon continued to cultivate. Azima as a source after the offer. Azima also allegedly dealt arms for the CIA. So that's really the the problem is he was a source for the Wall Street Journal reporter's story. He's also an arms dealer, and you're getting into business with an arms dealer? Yeah. So the Wall Street Journal fired him. This was all exposed because the Associated Press was investigating a Wall Street Journal reporter, which yeah. is odd. You don't really see that happening as much. But he, he was fired. He goes, well, our own investigation continues. We have concluded that Mr. Solomon violated his ethical obligations as a, as a reporter, as well as our standards, the Wall Street Journal said. I've never entered in any business with uh, Azima, or did I ever intend to? Solomon said, I apologize to my bosses and colleagues at the Journal who were nothing but great to me. So he's not defending himself, but he's not accepting yeah. the blame either. He's just stepping away. But yeah, the problem is it looks like he got into a deal... A business deal with an arms dealer being the uh, foreign affairs correspondent for the Wall Street Journal. Mm. See, I must be hungry because the one thing that stood out the most to me in that story was steak. Yeah, steak. And it wasn't even that type of steak. Not not at all. Not at all. <laughs> uh, the recent drop in the cost of oil has been a happy surprise for drivers who are enjoying the cheapest gas prices at the start of summer in 12 years. Oil prices have dipped into bear market territory and gasoline prices have followed, falling every day since June 2nd, according to AAA. The average price nationally for a gallon of regular is down to two twenty-eight a gallon. That's down 10 cents since the start of the month, and the outlook for the rest of the month is good. Wholesale gas prices suggest that prices drivers pay will keep falling, and this weekend could bring the cheapest gas prices so far in 2017, except for the gas station by my house, which is still at 250 Oh, well, thank you, President Trump, right? No, it's more the world market. <laughs> uh, it's nothing we've done as a country. So No, I'm, I'm, he wants us to thank him, I'm sure. Well, he'll probably have a yeah. press conference and let us yeah. know. You're welcome. Um, and finally, a number of CIA co- contractors were fired after stealing $3,324.40 worth of vending machine snacks between the fall of 2012 and the spring of 2013. Ooh. So CIA contractors stealing stuff from the vending machines. What would you steal? Or I shouldn't say steal. What would you select from the vending machine? Yes, what would, what would be your, your snack of choice if you had the opportunity just to take what you wanted? It's would you get the big pink cookie? That's in most vending machines, I believe. I'm going to go with my two favorite snacks from high school that I frequently got from the vending machine, the bag of Cheez-Its yeah. and the bag of crispy M&Ms. There you go. Yeah. I'm a Gardito's snack mix kind of guy with like really? the rye chips and the the other kinds of anything without the checks stuff or anything mm. granola based, like all the other salty stuff. Gorditas, isn't that like a Taco Bell? Okay. It's a gordito. Oh, okay, gotcha. The contractors (laughs) were taught how to fool the office vending machine into giving them free snacks by one particular employee who stewed up the plan using his knowledge of computer networks, a declassified report from the Office of Inspector General revealed. So there's a classified report at one point about people working at the CIA stealing from the vending machine. Wow. So they (laughs) declassified – this just made me laugh. They declassified the report, some dude stealing Cheetos, but it was classified. So at some point, someone asked the question, did he steal Cheetos? That's classified. We can't talk about that. I'd like to plead the fifth. This is all from BuzzFeed, by the way. The the, the wonderful in-depth reporting (laughs) from BuzzFeed about this. 
Um, so what, what what the hack involved was they unplugged the cable connecting to the machine the machine to an electronic payment system called Freedom Pay. So they have this system in the building called Freedom Pay. They unplugged the cable and then they use like a dummy Freedom Pay card that didn't have any money on it, and it, it fooled the machine into thinking a transaction was happening. And then they could just go pick what they wanted. And this so, is from what department again? It's just contractors at the CIA. Okay. See now, if, if they could just channel. This energy and you know this technical know-how, yes. and it, they could accomplish so many great things. Which is probably why they got fired. And yeah. <laughs> first story of the hour: elections may or may not have been hacked, right. but vending yeah. machines—they the vending machine. were hacked. It says, unfortunately <laughs> for the hungry contractors, video footage recovered from the surveillance cameras captured numerous perpetrators engaged in the Freedom Pay theft scheme, all of whom were readily identifiable as agency personnel. And uh, the report said, for a bit of perspective, assuming a bag of chips at the CIA costs around 50 cents, right? Let's just use that for – Which is low. That's low because you're using more closer to a dollar now. But just roughly 50 cents. The contractors apparently made off with the equivalent of (sighs) 6,648 bags of Doritos. Wow. That's Uh, a lot of Doritos. You know, maybe it will come back to bite them in the end and they'll get botulism. Like all these people have been from the Doritos at the gas station. Right. Those were nachos, but yeah. So um, Actually, they were nacho. They were Doritos covered nacho cheese there sauce. You go. It was the nacho cheese sauce that caused the problem. I'm just going to make an observation here. Yes. Um, because I, I'm looking in this section of the grocery store quite frequently. How much is a bag of Cheetos? Like a buck fifty on sale? Two dollars? Two, two For and a half. giant bag. I think it's more around three. Just go to because the grocery store. By, you get to that three, three and a half, that's when I tell my son no. His favorite food is Cheetos. Yeah. Because they're orange and that's his favorite color. They can get down to a dollar fifty, but you have to buy like ten bags. Yes. You should break the news to him that carrots are also he, orange. He won't we try and that Cheeto with shaped. carrots. He will not eat carrots. He mm. goes, They're gross. If they could come out with like a puffy carrot, that might be pretty good. We try to do the uh, the little mini carrots. Yeah. And the, those don't work either. We go, look, they're small. Eh, he doesn't want it. Oh, my goodness. doesn't like yeah. carrots. Finally, I have new food. Oh, yes. It's summer. Mm-hmm. Just the other day. First day of summer. Um, so you know, people like ice cream. Nice oh, yes. snack, a nice cold snack. So this place, it's called Little Baby's Ice Cream in Philadelphia. Apparently, they're known for their oddly favorite, flavored ice creams. Uh, they come up with pizza ice cream. Hmm. So it's ice cream, and it's made with tomato, basil, oregano, salt, and garlic. Oh, so it's not it's not just pizza flavored. It's legitimate pizza ingredients. Yeah. Legit in pizza ingre- ingredients in your ice cream. Okay. okay, I would try it, and here's why. Because a lot of times, it seems like this summer especially, yeah, you know, we've only been in the summer for a couple of days, but uh, I feel like I want something cold, but I still want to be able to eat my favorite foods. Okay. So pizza is one of my favorite foods, but I, I just have to have something cold because it's been so hot. So you have your oregano tomato basil ice cream. Yes. That sounds like an odd flavor. And what they do <laughs> is they serve you a slice of pizza with the ice cream on the pizza. A la mode. That sounds fantastic. I would try it. I am for I yeah. I would definitely try it. Yeah, it doesn't sound like completely offensive. You could see where it could go horribly wrong. Oh yeah. See, but I guess then if I if I want something cold and my favorite food, then why don't I just do what a lot of people enjoy doing and eat cold pizza? You could do that also. Yeah. 
So, Unfortunately, yeah. I enjoy also cold nacho cheese. Pizza, <laughs> pizza flavored ice cream, and if you would like, on a hot slice of pizza. Now tell me, yeah, if they were, if there was like a cold or a, a nacho cheese ice cream, I'd probably try that. Really? But then I'd get botulism. Probably, especially if it was from that gas station. Sprinkled in with Doritos. Yeah. Hmm. Not good. Yeah, I think I'm. My cholesterol level is rising just talking about it. You know, speaking of food, we've got one more interesting story here in regards to food. A suspect walks into an Ohio Subway restaurant and demands money. Okay, nothing out of the ordinary so far. It's probably happened a million times. But what happens next even caught him by surprise. It was all caught on camera. Open the register, the robber says. Get a job, subway worker Kathy Stafford told the suspect. The shocking response came from Stafford. I guess some people just have that courage here and there, Stafford said. I don't know what took over me. I I guess sometimes I do things I shouldn't do, and I speak just whatever comes to my mind. It just comes out. She even questioned the man, too. Are you the one that's been robbing these places? She asked. No, the suspect answered. I was really shocked what she was saying at that time. It was scary because you don't know in that mindset what he's thinking. If he could jump over the counter, said witness Sierra Harper. That's great. Give me the money. Get a job. Wow. It is so true because, you know, if he had a job, he hopefully would not be stealing from a subway. I wouldn't set foot in a subway. But, you know, that has nothing to do with the money. <laughs> oh, goodness. I shouldn't say that because I, I, I am sure we have subway to thank for all of these other wonderful establishments doing their $5 deals. Like we've got the $5 fill up at JFC and we've got the $5 pizza from uh, Big Caesars. Although uh, I'm pretty sure they started doing their $5 deal before Shubway. I think so. And it's kind of embarrassing that that $5 thing was such a big deal when it was because then inflation happens as it tends to do. And so now you can't really get any kind of uh, foot long or 12 inch or any size otherwise sub for only $5. Oh, now. yeah. And if you bring your ruler with you, uh, you'll you'll notice that they are consistently not 12 inches. Five, $5, $5 for 10 and a half inches just doesn't come off yeah. as well. No, it's, it's too hard. The math is too hard. But I tell you, $5 well spent is a $5 fill-up at JFC. You get two pieces of chicken. You get a biscuit. You get uh, a cookie. You get a soda. And, uh, gosh, I think we need to take a break so I can go get some chicken. I I tend to do this. Every time Matt is gone, uh, all I do is talk about food. And it's not like I'm underfed or malnourished. Actually, malnourished is probably closer to being the truth um, in terms of not eating the right things. Anyway, you don't need to hear about my problems. Maybe our next guest can help me figure out how to solve this problem. Well, maybe not. He's talking about how habitat made us human when we return. This is The Matt Townsend Show.
Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, we've all returned from a long vacation, being exhausted from travel, only to feel an overwhelming sense of comfort as you walk through the doors of your own home. Now, according to our next guest, Dr. John Allen, that feeling of home is more than just an expression. It is part of our evolutionary heritage. And our homes have helped us become the species that we are today. Dr. Allen joins us now on the show today to talk about his book, Home, How Habitat Made Us Human. Dr. John Allen, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Thanks for having me, Matt. Great to have you. I love uh, what you've done here, and I love what you're, you're teaching us. You know, historically, we kind of always think of evolution, like the big steps of evolution, I guess, were the ability to, you know, control fire, the ability to, um, I guess, maybe, huh, uh, you know, work as a, as a community. Mm-hmm. But you're, you're saying maybe even more important would be really this concept of home. What do you, what do you mean by that? Well, I think you, you've mentioned two things that I think were essential about, you know, that were made better by home with, with fire, uh, you know, you really have, you do become wedded to a place on the ground. Yeah, somewhere, and also yeah. for social life, um, and part of that social life is raising families. It's raising little kids with great big brains that take a lot of food and a lot of time to, to grow, and also having more than one child at a time, because that's something that's really distinct about human beings as opposed to the great apes who have one mother and one kid at a that's time. That's right. And have to wait till that kid grows up. So all this taking place at a place that we might eventually be call home. In fact, we had another um, anthropologist on from the University of Utah that talked about the role grandmothers played. Yeah. And I, I'm sure you've gotten into that. So oh, yeah. I mean, it, uh, talk about that. What is family, it? Um, you know, a home base simply makes all that easier, makes sharing food, because there's a lot of uh, one thing that fire made possible was to, you know, be able to deal with great big hunks of dead protein. Yeah. And also big roots in the ground, and so and then, but too much to eat for one person at a time, and so sharing became and and, and getting back to raising children and bringing fathers into the and, and grandmothers into the the equation. Yeah, I guess that was that was it. I mean, the men used to go hunt, and the the women might, I guess, they go forage, but the ability to have a grandmother living a little bit longer and being around made it so that the mother could have more children. Yeah, and especially the and the grandmother or an older mother helps raise those last kids. Mm-hmm. You know, all those things make a difference um, in 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 a world, you know, with it which is quite competitive and which there is, you know, all sorts of of uh diseases that we're we're now thankfully uh not having to deal with. So, yeah, investing in a num- large number of children and feeding them all at the same time, this is all helped by having a a home environment. Is it now and talk is it uh I guess it was having is it a tangible home that we're talking about a building an edifice or is it simply the concept of that that good warm feeling that we're safe. Yeah, I think it's much more about place. Okay. I mean, yes, we're people build things. Right? Yeah. We build things to surround us and we do that type of protection does get us something. But if we're but we look around, people live in all sorts of different structures, and some people feel at home in, a, in more of an open landscape than even in a, in a covered structure. Nonetheless, they sort of define this place that's theirs um, as opposed to the rest of the world, hmm. whether it's the wild world or other people. And I, and I say in the book it's almost a perceptual trick 
but it's a perceptual trick that lets us rest and restore and feel a little bit uh, more comfortable. And rest and restoration are really important for us. And I extend that beyond. It also gives you a place to think yeah. in the broadest sense. You can make plans for dealing with that outside world. So that sort of comfort and security is literally kind of an oasis for thinking. Yeah, man, I have I never thought of that too. Yeah, you could come back from the hunt and rest confident. Yeah, and even if it's just a little bit more secure, you know, it isn't going to stop a hurricane or a tornado. Right. Isn't going to stop a disease. Not even a determined whatever might try be trying to get you. But just a little separation uh, makes it, it gives you a little more comfort, and so I think it gives you time to to deal with things mentally. And that's again another of our our abilities. We we can make plans and think about them and we can share them with others through language. And did this talk about the creativity of it all is I mean it would seem like if I'm not kind of more as nomadic as I used to be and I'm now kind of fixed more to a location, I might burn out resources in my area. Is that what fostered creativity? What why would this make me more creative and why what does it have to do with today's, you know, kind of advanced society we live in? Well in terms of creativity, I, again, it enhances that because it, it thinks, I mean, nomads also, I think, can carry the sense of home with them, mm. as, oh. as, as you can carry a sense of home yeah. with you when you move from place to place. And so I think that's important. Uh, it's an important ability to develop in childhood. I think um, in the modern world, we can have this sense of home. People ask, have asked me, you know, can you only feel at home at home? I yeah. feel at home at work. Yeah, And again, I think that is certainly not unreasonable. We, we feel at home, not so much because it is home, it has been home in the past, but we feel at home, a place where we have relationships with people that are productive, where we define this, this place that's ours as opposed to that place that's theirs. Um, so I think you can, you, can, you can have homes in different places. You can create these home environments um, in different locales. What... Um... Because you're a neuro, you're a neuroanthropologist. Explain that. How does how does well, that work? Well, I've done a lot of research looking at brain structure and brain evolution, and also cognitive aspects of psychology in different cultures and with different, uh, also in terms of mental illness and cross cultural how that's expressed. So that's how I wind up at this sort of neuroanthropology place. I worked with neuro- neurologists quite a bit, hmm. so they like the idea of calling me a neuroanthropologist. <laughs> yeah. So I said, hey, I'll, I'll take that. Well, but so really, because it is an evolution of the, the brain, I guess it's an evolution of how we think. And, and this really is, it seems like a psychological concept too. Exactly. I mean, I think it's, I, they say that this whole idea of feeling at home, you know, people used to not do research on feelings very much. Um, but with brain imaging, and uh, you can actually now get at feelings or feelings for feelings. And, and I'm not saying that we have a unique feeling for home, but it's this sort of package of what some people have called background emotions. You know, it isn't you don't jump for joy the whole time you're at home. You're not hopefully right. you're not angry all the time when you're you know about your home. But these sort of uh, you know comfort and security are are there to keep your body in tune. Homeostasis, I, I refer to, and so I think uh, it's applying those sorts of feelings to to this home environment that's uh, unique in us. Does 
Does this stay with us as humans? Is it, I guess is it so because it was uh, you're you're kind of citing it as an evolutionary process. Then it's kind of inherent in today's humans mm-hmm. to want this feeling, to have this feeling, and I guess to be motivated by this feeling. How do we how do we um, achieve it today? And, and do you sense that I guess this could continue to change too, where people don't have this? Well, I think you achieve it. I think the, the way it's been achieved, like learning language, learning how to deal with people socially, is that it has to be it's done while you're growing up during these critical periods of childhood. And I think if you look at, say, kids in revolving foster care, how much trouble they have if they never uh, wind up in a forever home, as they mm-hmm. call it. Uh, if, they, if they age out of the foster care system, they have all these problems. They have a lot of uh, issues, but I think one of the issues is really it can be hard to ever feel at home, to feel secure in a place, and to feel secure with people. And so if you develop that in an earlier age, then you can have that later and develop in your own family or in your workplace or wherever it is productive to cooperate with people who are sharing the space. Oh, it's so true, isn't it? And and it really um... – I mean, it is debilitating. It seems like, especially. I, I'm sure you've you've gotten into all the other uh, theories about attachment theory mm-hmm. and detachment theory, and now how many relationships are being impacted by the fact that people are didn't maybe feel that sense of home when they were younger or yeah, safe. I think this would get, I, and I think, and it's it's sort of the same thing with about dealing with homelessness. Um, the people who are homeless have many of them have. Uh, especially like economic homelessness as opposed to, say, because of a mental illness or something, they really have a profound sense of disconnect and loss and not being part of society. And so I think in terms of attachment, when you're growing up and these things don't develop properly, it should give us a lot more respect for this home environment um, in a lot of different ways and why it's important to enhance it. Yeah. Um, we're speaking with Dr. John Allen from USC, and he is, uh, he is a neuroanthropologist working at the Dornsif uh, Cognitive – is it Dornsif? Dornsif. Yeah. Dornsif Cognitive Neuroscience Imaging Center and Brain and Creativity Institute at the University of Southern California. And he's, he's just teaching us about his research um, around home. And as a as a neuroanthropologist, uh, it, it's I, I to me it's so fascinating just to know that some of these things we hold so dear, like family. Uh, we I just had a my mother in law passed away of Alzheimer's, and but it's so amazing how home is is so important. We all now will go to grandma's home and be with grandpa, and it helps us heal as a family. And I mean, it's it's essential and. The simple idea to think that um, it's man, it's that old. It's from our you know we've evolved this concept of home. Um, it's really powerful. Teach us the concept um, a little bit more, if you would, about uh, about how home and homesickness is. Um, how do, how does that impact us? I mean, because in a way, this concept of home can be debilitating. Couldn't yeah, well, it? I mean, it could make it so we can't leave home. We can't. We yeah. won't go progress. We don't want to grow. That's right. Well, I think, and, and, and that's one extreme. And then, but I think, and that that isn't, uh, and that's home where you, you, you almost say that the relationship with the place has overtaken the relationships with people. Mm. And to some extent, you know, home is about people and place. Yeah. And things. So it's almost like it's like hoarders live in a home, but they're. They're, 
for home for them has a is a different relationship relationship with things. And I was saying how homesickness is really a sign. Take you know some psychologists have called it a mini grief, and and it it's the grief that results when you you know grief normal grief we think of and and that sort of temporary depression that goes with it is a very natural reaction to the loss of something significant. Mm. And if you are without you, if you grieve because you've lost your home, like you might grieve because you've lost a loved one, um, that's a sign that that was a significant part of your life, a significant relationship. And mm. luckily, most people can move on, right? You, you get yeah. past your grieving, whether it's for a person, and you get past your grieving, whether it's for a place. Now, some interesting studies have shown that in establishing a new place, it happens faster if you are also establishing relationships near or where in that locale. Mm. So clearly, again, feeling at home is also feeling at home with people or with people who are nearby. I, I guess, and that's, um, it's, it would be, it'd be probably, I guess, easier for some, maybe some that have a little anxiety, a little social anxiety, mm. to, to be connected to their room mm-hmm. more than the people. Yeah, I think that, that's that's true. Yeah. And then you know they go away to college and they no longer have their room and they've got a l- bunch of weird people. Exactly, and of course homesickness. All the most of the research is done on college students because they're yeah. the, the the handy big population who are all homesick for that's psychology. Right. That's, right. that's right, and they're all on campus. Yeah, <laughs> so you, they're just an easy group to, yeah. to tackle. Well, it really is a fascinating concept. How has it changed? You, how has it changed your your life? I mean, and and I mean, because of all the things you could have hooked together, mm. language, you know, fire, food, sociality, you somehow connected really to the the real root of it all. Today, at least, is home. Yeah, I mean, I I work a lot at home. I've I've, I've been working at a distance for a long time. I don't know if that made me think of it. Hmm. Um, I've been interested in home partly because I I originally. Uh, studied people with, you know, studied mental illness and people who suffer from mental illness, and a lot of them suffer, you know, also homelessness is a, a major issue. And I've been struck over that in doing field work in lots of different countries, you know, that, that this sort of pervasive idea uh, holds. And yeah. so I, for my own personal life, I really do try to think about where I'm living and how my family, uh, you know, works within the home and hopefully... You know, my kids learn that this is a, a you know a social environment. It isn't a, a uh, an environment where they're served, and and so you know it's it's it is it does affect me in that way. I, I look at my I look at my home differently now than I than I used to. Yeah, I I do too. I'm kind of more of a social psychologist, mm-hmm. and I understand that it's the relationships that create the meaning. It's the interactions that create the the development, and I think. Um, yeah, they almost become sacred, right? It's like, okay, mm-hmm. we've got a, and I, I mean, the home would be the same concept. Does it matter? Because every culture is a little different in their right. homes. And have you noticed that this is this theory? It it it's strong cross culturally, and yes, because the household is always a basic unit. Yeah. Now it may look quite different, right? It may be a different kind of structure, and the composition could be quite different, right? It's not a nuclear family, you know. Even in our culture, you know, we think extended family, we go, you know, as far away as grandparents or aunts and uncles. Right. But, you know, some cultures would have much more extended and much more complex ways of giving up a household. And so we see that that unit is, is really basic. But what it's and why it's more of a, a psychological or a cognitive thing is because it doesn't have a physical bound. 
it's conceptualized. And then I say I define home from the inside out, not mm. from, from the outside in. And I think if you get down past old, in a lot of that, you get to this core sense of home, it's a feeling that we, we tend to share. And it really, uh, I mean, I guess that it can be, if it's from the inside out, it's, I mean, it could be your uncles that raised you because your parents died. And I mean, it could be anything. It could be two moms. It could be a mom and a dad. It's just the concept of being able to know you're safe and protected and able to grow. Right. And it could, you know, and it could be a house. It could be an apartment. It could be a jail cell, right? Do you have these stories about? Interesting. Yeah. You don't want to leave, leave jail. Are, are there roles, I guess, that have always been played? I mean, I guess, guess homes also have some inherent hierarchy. Well, I think there is, there's, there's usually defined, uh, there's going to be a, an older adults, and a home is there for children, right, to raise right. children. And I think that's sort of the basic, that's a, if there's a purpose for home, it's, it's to, to get these kids grown. And so that, can, that imposes a sort of, uh, structure in that way, yeah. and uh, some people refer to humans though as, as as sort of cooperative parents, cooperative breeders. That in the sense that you do bring grandmothers into the story. I mean, uh, you bring fathers in, which is unusual in in the great apes. Usually, it's the mother and an offspring. Hmm. Um, but either indirectly or directly, the the parent, the, the the fathers are are contributing to the raising of offspring, either through resources or just directly in humans. And it's been in different cultures. So, you know, we have that. The basic structure, though, is that I, I would say, I'm not, I'm not thinking about too much about before, is this, there are children and there are older people. Hmm. It's, um, as a dad, uh, I have six kids, big hmm. family, John, yep. and a grandbaby. What would you, what advice, just as we kind of wrap this up, what advice would you give me, uh, kind of trying to, you know, with my wife, lead our family, anything we could do to make sure that we keep home healthy. You know, the one thing I, I talk about in the book and about again about some psychological uh, and social psychology research is is synchrony, and I think it's really critical to have a syn- to synchronize your lives. And the people who are sharing a home um, traditionally have been people who live their lives at least to some extent in step. Hmm. And so, when you have a big family like that, and you have all these different interests coming, we have this in, in a small family with people going off to swim practice and this and that. Um, I think it's really important, and this is kind of gets at the idea: oh, you got to share a meal, right? You right. eat dinner together. You got to. But you know, I think that synchronized lives uh, lead to all sorts of positive feelings toward you know towards others in the relationship. Um, as long as, you know, you can negotiate that if it's so complicated. Someone says, oh, I'm missing out on going to the movie because I have to do this with my family. <laughs> right. But still, I, I, I would suspect even that can pay off. So in a, that's one thing off the top of my head. I love it. No, I think that's great advice. Well, Dr. John Allen, we appreciate you. And your, your wonderful book sounds like a great uh, read, Home, How Habitat Made Us Human. Thank you for joining us today, and just thanks for your interest in home. Okay, and thanks for having me, Matt. You bet. Take care. Okay. Doc, Dr. John Allen um, from USC, again, from the, uh, the Dornsife uh, Cognitive Neuroscience Imaging Center and Brain and Creativity Institute there at the University of Southern California. Uh, interesting stuff, folks. That concept of home, that feeling of home, it's with you today because of your, uh, your, your ancestors that uh, fostered it. And it's always been, apparently, it's, it's been the key. It's one of the keys to... Uh, longevity to healthy to healthy humanity interesting stuff we'll take a break folks you're listening to us right here on BYU radio
Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. That was a, an interesting interview that Matt uh, conducted with how Habitat or uh, with John Allen about how Habitat made us human. And now we're going to conduct not an interview but a discussion with Terry South, who's uh, got an interesting topic here for us about why Americans are so terrible with their money. Yes, the statistics come out every few months of some new aspect of how we as a general population apparently don't know how to manage our money, save our money. Is Apple to blame for this? Uh, well, <laughs> products like that because we we don't we feel like we need it so we're going to make that sacrifice and buy this 6-700 item and, yeah. or you buy it on a monthly installment so you have that extra bill. And then you just keep buying things like that and you end up basically living paycheck to paycheck regardless of mm. how much money you make. Yeah. In this country, people will make, you know, well over $100,000, $200,000, but you'll find out that they don't have any savings. That is just so crazy. Yeah. You always think like, if I had more money, I could save it and people yeah, don't. They, they the just answer. They spend yep. it all. So uh, this is out of uh, – it's got off a website called moneyish.com. So <laughs> a slew of survey data has come out that reveals uh, we don't save enough. Uh, this is the first one. About one in four people literally have no emergency savings. A survey released by bankrate.com found that 24% of Americans don't have a single dollar saved for an emergency. And that's just one of many surveys showing how little we saved. A survey released in January found that nearly 60% of Americans wouldn't have enough savings to pay for a $500 expense if it came up unexpectedly. Oh, that's scary. Yeah. That's a scary thought. Wait, did you say one in four? One in four have no emergency savings. Oh, it seems like it'd be more than that. They're saying 60% of Americans don't have like $500 if they needed it right now. That is super scary. So how much is in their emergency? Like the, the... There's a disconnect there between 25% with none and 60 that have less than 500. Right. Mm. And it says experts recommend that Americans have at least three to six months of income in the bank to pay for unexpected emergencies. Wow. Then the question is how many of those experts actually have that much money in the bank for themselves? (laughs) Apparently not many if it's one in four. Wow. I think we're close to that if we don't already have – if we haven't already achieved that. Hmm. Something to think about. Yeah. Uh, the second one here says, we are more worried about paying for our next vacation than about saving enough for retirement. That's probably true. Yep. The findings of a study <laughs> released this week by Country Financial, which Americans report being more concerned about affording the vacations, 36%, than have adequate retirement at 32%. That may explain in part why more than half of Americans will be broke when we retire. That totally makes sense. You know, I, people are very good at... Living for now. Living for now. Like, retirement, oh, that's decades from now. I don't need to worry about that. So... Not realizing that, you know, they probably won't we, get any social security benefits by the time they're retiring. <laughs> yeah, that's going to fall apart. My wife and I sat down with a financial planner at one point, and we showed, okay, this is what we have. And he went, wow, you're doing pretty well. And we're both looking at each other like, that's not that much money. And he goes, trust me, compared to everybody else, you're doing fine. Oh, that is great to hear. I, like, I almost kind of want to visit with a financial analyst to hear that, you know, although my wife is an accountant. So. And we're, my wife and I still were doing the math like, this won't be enough. And he goes, just keep doing it. Most people have nothing. You have a little bit of something. And I went, oh, yeah. Okay. All right. Well, okay. I didn't even know what we were doing. I just had all these accounts, you know, and you start looking around like, oh. Uh, three, it says, millions of us hide money from our spouses and partners. Oh. An estimated 12 million Americans confess that they keep a source of money secret from their romantic partners. 
that's typically not smart. Experts say it anytime you get into these kind of things where you're operating behind the scenes, it usually comes out at some point. Then you get a fight, and any spouse who has had any kind of suspicion could become a detective and find it, and then you're in trouble. Anytime there's cash in my home that my wife doesn't know about, it's because I also don't know about it. Right. You know, like, oh, wow, look, I go to pick bucks. up my keys, it's like, whoa, where'd this $8 come from? Yeah, and you feel like you're loaded. You have $8. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. Oh, goodness. Uh, the next one, it says, we prioritize paying the wrong bills first. When we can't pay all our bills, we make bad choices about which ones to pay. Like, instead of maybe paying the mortgage, you pay for the TV. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to pay the cable bill first, then we'll talk about mortgage. Next. Let's get our priorities straight. Cable is important, right? Consumers in financial distress tend to prioritize unsecured personal loans ahead of other credit products such as auto loans, mortgages, and credit cards, according to a study of roughly 2 million consumers who had all four types of debt out this week from a credit monitoring service. So uh, basically, it says we, we should do it uh, – it says experts say that, back, that a backwards way to handle these bills is paying them. Obviously, you pay the unimportant stuff first. The important stuff is the things like, as they're saying, you need to pay off your your auto loans, mortgages, and credit cards. Yeah, not your, you know, the the cable bill or your phone bill. Those sorts of things. But that is things. just another way to live in the now. If Absolutely. you don't pay your cable, yeah. they will shut you off. If you don't pay your phone, they will. St- Stop it from working. Whereas your mortgage, if you don't pay that, they don't come and kick you out of your house right away. It takes a few delinquencies to, for that to catch up. Yeah, Same yeah, with yeah. the auto. So that's just another short-sighted. You're living for the now instead of thinking ahead. Yeah. You heard mm-hmm. it here from Cole Wissinger. Don't pay your mortgage payments or uh, don't make your mortgage payments. The last point on this, it says we've racked up $1 trillion in credit card debt and that's just a fraction of what we actually owe. According to data released this year from the Federal Reserve, we found that U.S. consumers own one trillion in their credit, one trillion and some change. It's a bunch of zeros uh, in their credit. This is up six percent from a year ago. It's the highest amount owed since 2009. Once more, this isn't the only consumer debt to top one trillion. We now owe more than a trillion for our cars and for our student loans. And data shows that uh, that's what the data is showing now. So we own a trillion for each of those. Consumer debt and then car loans and student debt, they're all at a trillion dollars national. That wow. You know, a lot of people come out and say, pay for the uh, the things – what do they say? Don't pay for the things that you need to pay for up front. Pay for the things that are in line with your goals. Like if mm-hmm. you're saving for a vacation or if you're saving for retirement, put that money away first and then worry about the stuff – that has to be paid from month to month, which is kind of a hard concept to wrap your head around. But uh, And I would say maybe mortgage first because you need a place to live so you can worry about the rest of the debt. True. Yeah. But it really – maybe, if nothing else, it, it maybe, gets you in the right mind frame right. that we should – oh, yeah. We or, are or supposed may- to be saving money each month. Maybe you need a car to get to the place where you earn money so you can pay off the rest of the debt. So maybe the car needs to be next or something. You know what I mean? There's You can start thinking about how do I pay my debt and then what do I need to pay my debt and kind of prioritize that way. Maybe cable TV can be like the last thing on the list. If, you know, Maybe cut the cable if it is an issue and you're trying to pay off debt. I don't know. Those also, are easy things to say. Also, the bigger the debt, the bigger the interest once you stop paying as much towards it. So it's going to rack up higher than just right. missing a couple like cable payments. They'll slap you with a late fee. That late fee is nothing compared to you know the interest mm. on putting off your car payment. There you go. Which is some good ideas. 
Oh, maybe I won't pay for my no. I money. shouldn't say that. So in general, as a as a nation, we're bad with money, and uh, the nation itself is bad with money. As we as we're always in debt, right? As a nation, we just keep buying things we don't have money for. And there's no real solution to it, even though a lot of people want to try. And they yeah. will. Coming up, there will probably be another debt limit fight. And those are always fun to watch people fight over paying our bills and then <sighs> not coming up with a solution and kicking it down until January. And they'll figure out in January. And then in January, you kick it off to like March and October. And we'll just figure this out later. Just prioritize people. Yeah. Pay for the needful things. Get rid of the things that you don't need. Anyway... Just good. It's a good reminder that uh, we need to be careful with the way we spend our money and save our money. Great tips from Terry South here on the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. You know, speaking of money problems... uh, A Florida man has some car problems. He finds something in the engine compartment. Florida man made a surprising discovery when his car wouldn't start last week. The man popped his hood to try to figure out the problem and found a ball python coiled up on top of his engine. Oh, When the Wildlife Inc. Education and Rehabilitation Center arrived at the scene, they say the three-foot-long snake had moved into a small metal space above the wheel and balled itself up. About 30, after about 30 minutes, handlers were able to loosen the reptile up and remove it from the car unharmed. It is now in the care of Wildlife Inc. Well, that's a good thought. But this does remind me of a film that we've promoted here on the Matt Townsend Show and on screen cleaning uh, with Samuel L. Jackson. He's been making a lot of these in the and on the uh, films. And this is just a, a small taste of the film Snakes in a Car. I have had it with these mother-loving snakes in this monkey-fighting car. Take that, snake! Now you history. Oh my goodness! You know that actually looks better than most of the movies that are out right now. I cannot bring myself to go to the movies. Just doesn't seem like there's much out there. But you loved Wonder Woman, right, Cole? Oh, absolutely. Huh. Any snakes in that movie? Um, no. Oh, no, I'm probably not interested Great then. Movie, and no Samuel L. Jackson either. Nope. <laughs> it's DC. Wrong, uh, wrong comic book universe there. Well, is he from DC? Different DC. Anyway, uh, that was a bad joke. We're going to take a break, and uh, when we come back, we're going to continue the fun. We're also going to be speaking with a gentleman who's going to be talking to us about how to be built for growth, how builder personality shapes your business, your team, and your ability to win. When we return, this is The Matt Townsend Show. This is 
is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. This is hour number three of the program. We are still Dr. Matless. He will be back soon, though. He's recovering well from his surgery. So wish him well. Send him some tweets. Send some positive energies and thoughts his way, and I'm sure he'll appreciate it. As I'm sure he's sitting around and watching Netflix, getting caught up. If he's not, he's wasting precious time. I would be so disappointed in him. Because he's, I don't want to say he's living the dream, because he's certainly not, but he, he's got to take advantage of this time that, he's, that he has. Oh. Because I, I was thinking if I had a few days off because of a medical procedure and yeah. I had to sit somewhere, I have about three video games I have never finished. <laughs> and I would totally just throw them in and go with, go for it. Just try to finish those before I had to go back to work. Yeah. Especially um, if you can't really walk around too much and there's stitches involved and they just want you to sit and do nothing. I'll be happy. Guilt-free to. relaxation. Yeah. They want you to be sitting there. And remember, so do it. remember the day of video games when the only option to uh, continue where you left off was to just press pause and turn the TV off. Yes, you had to say said that, to sit there. Yeah, and that was it. I remember having to do that with uh, the Star Wars game on Super Nintendo. Yep. And it's kind of a pain, especially the older you get, the more you realize how much these appliances and devices suck energy and oh, yeah. power. Oh, man. But Donkey Kong Country, one of my favorites as a child, they yeah. give you save points, but if you go and collect lives, they don't save the lives. Oh, like, if you turn off the system, lame. you just come back with five, even if you'd gotten up to, like, 99 or whatever. Um, if you save, it doesn't save that part of it. So that's another, you know, huh. just flick off the TV, leave the sucker running. and See, yeah. that's a game I love because I could actually beat it. One of the easier games I've played. Probably the easiest video game I've ever played was uh, Aladdin on mm. Super Nintendo. As opposed to Aladdin for Sega Genesis, which was an entirely different game. Nowadays, really? when a movie comes out, they just lay out the video game. They roll it out for all three different systems. But Aladdin had an entirely unique game come out for Super Nintendo and for Sega Genesis. Oh. Hmm. I had both. Interesting. You know, Cole and I are actually going to be talking to somebody about video games next week on Screen Cleaning. cleaning. Because we will not have a show tomorrow uh, because we've decided to donate uh, one hour of the Matt Townsend show to Sports Nation tomorrow. Well, we didn't really decide. Someone told us. <laughs> it was, was well, happening. I think the point is it was decided. It was decided. Let's not get for hung us. up on oh, okay, who okay, decided. Okay. It's not about credit. It was here. decided. I yeah. I understand. It's not about credit. <laughs> And, of course, it's Onion Rings Day, so uh, go out and have some onion rings or anything that's fried, really, because that's what uh, being an American is all about, apparently, as we've been talking about here on the Matt Townsend Show this morning. I'll always remember the episode of The Simpsons where uh, Homer does not have a ring to uh, with which to propose to Marge, and so he put, slips a, an onion ring on her finger. Very tender. I think they ate the onion ring, too. True romance. <laughs> they say that the way to uh, – uh, oh, I guess that's a way to a man's heart is by his stomach. Anyway, can't work both ways, right? Terry South, what is going on around the rest of the country that we should know about? 
House Majority Whip Steve Scalise is steadily improving after being shot in the hip last week, is now in fair condition. MedStar Washington Hospital Center said on Wednesday Scalise was shot uh, during that uh, Republican congressional baseball team practice in Alexandria, Virginia, and arrived at the hospital in critical condition. He suffered fractured bones, internal bleeding, and extensive damage to his internal organs after being shot, but he continues to make good progress. At the hospital, he's now beginning an extended period of healing and rehabilitation. He could be in the hospital, as they said, for weeks. So no timetable to get him out, but he's, but he is he's progressing. That's he's great. U.S. Geological Survey, the USGS, accidentally sent out an alert about a 6.8 magnitude earthquake on Wednesday that actually occurred 100 years ago. <laughs> Whoops. I don't know how that happens. The USGS said the automatic alert was a false alarm based on an earthquake that occurred in 1925 off the coast of Santa Barbara. Scientists said the California Institute of Technology where they were attempting to relocate the epicenter of the 1925 tremor, and their actions were misinterpreted by software as a current event. So they're doing an experiment, they're trying to figure out, the, and then they triggered some alert, and it sent an alert to Southern California that Oops. there was a 6.8 earthquake. <laughs> um, the actual event, 1925, destroyed parts of Santa Barbara and resulted in damage around $8 million at the time. Wow. 13 people died, again, in 1925. Wait, $8 million of in 1925 money? money? Yeah. Or is it the equivalent of no. $8 million? Oh, my goodness. Probably their money. So probably, wow. That was pretty big at the time. Yeah. Uh, the electronic signs above Colorado highways offer a warning to drivers who reach for their cell phones. It says new texting laws, uh, law fines increase to $300. Right? So if you get caught texting, $300 yeah. fine. That's pretty big. Yeah. What it doesn't mention... Texting while driving is now legal in Colorado as long as it isn't done in a, quote, careless or imprudent manner. Uh, I think they need to go one way or the other because how, how do you judge that? Well, if someone's I guess a we- judge would if they're it, weaving but... or if you're, you know, causing a problem on the freeway or you cause an accident and they find out you were texting, $300 fine. Sheesh. But I guess if you text and don't get caught. Now, everywhere in the country, if you text and don't get caught... You don't get caught. There's no fine. Yeah. Right? But they just made it legal. So is it legal? No other place says it's legal to do this. <laughs> and I, this is more for my own curiosity. Yeah. Uh, is it legal to text while you're waiting at a stoplight? I'm not sure. Some some It depends on your state. Some states, if your car is on, you cannot. You should not be touching your phone at all. Interesting. Just depends on wh- how strict your state is. But the is. GPS is on the phone. Right. The little notice provision uh, little uh, softening the state standard is part of a new law that increased the penalties for texting while driving careless, the citation from $50 to $300 and from one to four points, from one point to four points on a driver's license. Before now, any text messaging or manual data entry by a motorist was prohibited. The simple fact is that if you're texting while driving but not being careless, it's no longer illegal said the Colorado District Attorney's Council representative. The weaker standard comes even as Colorado officials warn about the epidemic of distracted driving and other states are moving to toughen their laws to discourage cell phone use by motorists. But in Colorado, apparently, if you don't cause a problem, it's legal. You know, we all need to remember that there was a day and time when we didn't have there was no way to text or even call somebody while you were driving but people still shaved and put their makeup on and ate breakfast <laughs> and played with the radio all that stuff didn't so. ha- didn't wear their seat belts right yeah those were the days 
that big uh, bench seat in the front of the car mm. that you know you just threw anybody and everybody into that seat, you including just children. Slid around on because you didn't you don't buckle up, yeah. right? And then they were had some sort of naga hide or something on there as the cover, and you just slide across the seat. It was great. And now hold you on to me, Dad. You have to be in a car seat until you're about twenty years old. Yes, twenty years old and about six foot three, cutoff. and you can get the kid out of the car seat finally. So if, if, so if you're twenty five, but you're under six foot three, you're out of luck. That's right. Yeah. Finally, some folks in Oregon might not want to ask, but when served an elk burger or a venison steak, you may not want to know where the meat came from, apparently. Under a roadkill bill passed overwhelmingly by the no. legislature and signed it by the oh. governor, motorists who crash into the animals can now harvest the meat for themselves to eat. And it's not that unusual as people might think. About 20 other states also allow people to take the meat from animals killed by vehicles. Aficionados say roadkill can be high-quality grass-fed grub. You guys are not from central Pennsylvania if this is news to you. Eating eating roadkill is healthier for the consumer than meat laden with antibiotics, hormones, and other stimulants, as most meat is today, says the representative from PETA. Washington State began allowing the salvaging of deer and elk carcasses a year ago. Pennsylvania might top the road... The country and roadkill, so they they give your uh, state there Told some you props so. there. The Oregon wildlife officials telling lawmakers that eastern the eastern state had this. So Pennsylvania, as it says here, had over one thousand or one hundred twenty six thousand vehicle wildlife accidents in twenty fifteen. One hundred twenty six thousand in twenty fifteen. I think my dad was one of those. Like that's <laughs> so, and apparently they allow the harvesting of animals. I mean, you know, what's wrong? Just cut out the part that got ran over, and you still have quality meat. It's not mm-hmm. unusual to harvest your animals, and especially like kill. like a deer. I mean, the other side of it is it just it gets picked up and tossed, I guess, into some refuge bin. But see, I could never do that because I cannot stand the taste of rubber. Well, I mean, you don't eat that part. Well, it'd be mixed in there. It'd have that instead of a mesquite and, and, flavor, and it would most, have a rubber flavor. And most to of the time, it. with a deer, you don't run over it; you just hit it. It's, That's they're true. pretty large animals. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, what else are you going to do when you're sitting there because your car's destroyed on the side of the road because you hit an elk? You well, call game commission, and then you call your grandpa and say, right. "Hey, grandpa, bring the truck. Some barbecue. I yeah. got us an elk." Mm-hmm. Luckily, I I bring my portable grill with me in the car. So there you go. While I'm waiting for help, ready at all times. There's a barbecue. Wow. Anything else that uh, we should? Uh, that anything else to pique our interest? Um, a new report from the U.S. Energy Information Administration reveals a milestone for alternative energy solutions for the first time. The nation as a whole drew 10% of its electricity from wind and solar farms in a single month. It happened in March, with wind accounting for 8% and solar accounting for 2%. Final numbers for April aren't out yet, but scientists are pretty sure the 10% mark was reached again. The percentage is expected to dip below 10% as the summer arrives and people crank up their air conditioners. But in general, the figure will likely continue to gradually creep towards or upwards as states ramp up their goal of renewable energy. Hmm. Would you would you rather put uh, solar panels on your roof or uh, wind turbines in your front yard? It depends on the presentation. I think if the wind turbines could deter uh, solicitors, I'd be Ooh, all for it. Wow. We've been getting a lot of soli- – like twice daily, people coming to our door. Are you in a newer neighborhood or – No. Okay. Hmm. No. Sometimes they hit the newer one because they figure you're – just kind of new in the. I know yours. You were saying yeah, yours is more of an established neighborhood. That's weird. 
Some of those solicitors <sighs> are really useful, doors. though, because the best tamales I've ever had in my life came from just this this elderly lady that came to my door and but wanted to sell me a tamale, and so I bought it's it. It's never food. A tamale, you could come into my home yes. if you had tamales at oh, yes. my door. I would let you in, and uh, you could have dinner with me. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Mm. it uh, I, That might be a deterrent for the salesperson is what you're saying, Terry? Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> now, when it comes to the solar power versus the wind power, I think they're speaking more of like your power company. Yeah. Actually having a solar farm or a wind farm and then using that energy instead of, say, coal-fired plants or something. Mm-hmm. Now, we had a guy on the show who runs a uh, power co-op bunch of different little uh, cities in southern Utah and I think Wyoming, Colorado, kind of through that area. Yeah. And uh, he said they're investing in solar to put up solar farms because we have all this desert area and you can just set up a solar farm, no problem. The problem is getting that to uh, produce enough energy because you have to have yeah. just so many solar cells to be able to pull enough energy to make it reasonable for a company to invest that way. And uh, and he says, so, so slowly the whole ener- energy sector of the country is making the switch because it's cleaner, it's easier, you don't have to maintain it the same way you do. But it's like really coal. slowly. But it's really yeah. slow. So like we just said 10% last, what, couple months ago, they're saying by 2020 the U.S. grid will be powered 15%. Right? So you're making small steps over That's many, more many than years. I thought it would be in three years. Right. Yeah. Interesting. So it's a slow process. Not necessarily the cells on your house if you want to put a solar array on your roof. See, it kind of goes back to the discussion we were having earlier of people living in the now right. and especially, you know, they're they're not thinking about their finances in the future. So, sure, it may save us money and, you know, be better for the environment or be better energy-wise in the long run. But for now, they're looking at their bill thinking, I'm, I can't afford that right now. Well, yeah. Because when you get one of those solar cell packages, put it on your roof, it's like a 10-year cycle before you've made your money back. Right. Right. And so you have to have that in mind and kind of think down the road, this is going to make, you know, be more reasonable for for power bills, that kind of thing. But at the moment, there's going to be some expense and some hassle with, you know, construction. And my thing is you got to have your house facing the right way so you can have them on the back side of the house where people can't see them from the street because right. when you put them on the mm-hmm. front of the house, it kind of looks They're weird. They're not aesthetically pleasing as you would hope. Yeah. And it's also a paywall where the, the rich are able to afford it right now, whereas the large portion of America that doesn't even have $500 in savings That's a good can't point. exactly put a really expensive solar chunk of panels on their roof because – they, they can't afford to save money in the future because they can't afford to do it now. So what you're saying, let me, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but what I'm hearing from you is basically if you've got solar panels on your roof, you're, you might as well put up a big giant sign that says we have money. Come in and break into our home and steal all our goods. Was that – I think that's what you were saying. You're paraphrasing slightly. <laughs> no, I thought that was verbatim. Mm. Anyway – but uh, I don't have the best hearing either. We've we've talked about that on the show before. We won't get into that right now because it's kind of a sensitive subject. It involves an air horn and my cousin. So you know who you are. We'll take a break, and uh, when we come back, we'll be we'll be uh, speaking with John Danner, who's going to be talking to us about how to be built for growth. When we return, this is the Matt Townsend Show.
Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. This is Jeff Simpson filling in for Dr. Matt while he's away. You know, there are many factors that go into the success of a startup business, but what factors are completely within your own control? Well, John Danner, professor of entrepreneurship at Princeton University's Keller Center, co-wrote the book Built for Growth, How Builder Personality Shapes Your Business, Your Team, and Your Ability to Win. John, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Thanks a lot, Jeff. I appreciate being here. And thank you so much for being with us. Uh, I'm curious to know what – I have a small business myself, and uh, and Matt Townsend has a small business – and mine's not exactly new, but I, I'm trying to figure out ways to make it more successful like any other business owner. What is the most important factor in the success of a new business? Well, I'd have to start with uh, old old wisdom, I think, uh, and that is uh, from Socrates, who said, know thyself, because as you mentioned in your introduction, one of the most famous definitions of entrepreneurship is the pursuit of opportunity beyond the resources you control. And as a small business person, you're very aware of the resources you don't control, right? You don't right. probably have enough money, enough customers, enough space, enough technology, etc. cetera. Uh, but the one resource you do have some control over is you, is your personality, and how you deploy that resource, which, after all, is what got you into entrepreneurship to begin with and is the one resource you're left with when late at night you're trying to decide what to do next. Being able to focus your strengths, your gifts, as we call them in the book, and understand and and humbly acknowledge the gaps that go along with, with your personality so that you can leverage that one resource as best you can because it's your judgment, it's your choice about the people you hire, about the way you organize your business, about how you approach your customers, uh, that really, at the end of the day, is going to be the defining characteristic of success or lack of success. John, this is a really good reminder to me because, uh, you know, this is making me think about some of the the better interactions that I've had with some of my own customers. And it's when I've kind of thought outside the box and utilized my strengths and come up with creative ways to you know, to thank my my clients, I I remember sending out a uh, Christmas in July card to a lot of my clients, and that was well received. So this is a good reminder to me. So I'm I'm really excited to to talk to you about this. So uh, in your book that you co-wrote, um, you you ha- you argue that there are four types of entrepreneurial personalities. So I'm curious to know what they are, and and just tell us a little bit more about them. Sure. You know, the, the media would have people believe that you have to be one kind of person in order to be successful as an entrepreneur. Uh, and the, the current icons would be folks like Steve Jobs or Elon Musk uh, and the like. Uh, our research that Chris Keeney, my colleague at Princeton, and I conducted actually has discovered, as you mentioned, these four quite different types. And no one type has a monopoly on the formula for success by any means. Each of them does this very differently, but each of them have been uh, extraordinarily successful. The first, uh, since we started off with Steve Jobs, might be the type that we call the driver. Um, Drivers are really almost entrepreneurs by nature. These are folks that knew from the get-go that this was their chosen calling, if you will. Uh, They are fixated by the product or solution that they bring to the market almost to the point of, as Chris and I say in the book, product narcissism. 
Uh, in other words, they take this very, very personally. Yeah. They're convinced that they're right. Uh, they are absolutely certain that they have an understanding of what the market is looking for. And although in each of these cases, there are obviously very famous people that we cite in the book, there are also many, many more uh, less well-known entrepreneurs who share similar personality characteristics. And maybe we can get into those a little bit later. But before we do, let me just round out this quartet of, of builders, as we call them. The second would be what we call the explorer. And explorers aren't so much fixated by product as they are fascinated by the puzzle. These are people that are systems analysts, first and foremost. They love taking apart complicated problems, if you will, and figuring out a particular solution to them that nobody else has been able to do before. Um, and these are folks that, that may, over time, lose interest in the last problem they solved because they're always looking for the next one to satisfy their curiosity. But they're capable of producing enormous value uh, given the kinds of instincts and strengths that they have. Uh, a good example of, of somebody like this would be uh, Sarah Blakely, uh, who's the builder of a company called Spanx, uh, which has been a very, very successful a ladies' undergarment uh, business uh, based in the South. But Brian O'Kelly, the founder of AppNexus, which is one of the giants behind the web in terms of uh, establishing ad auctioning uh, algorithms, is another example, as is the founder of uh, Dealer.com, a guy named Mark Bonfili. Uh The third group is what we call crusaders. Uh, ben and Jerry would be a good example of, of this type. Uh, but so, too, would somebody like Jenny Fleiss, who's the co-founder of Rent the Runway, or uh, somebody like Nate Morris, who's the founder of, uh, of a whole new approach to solid waste disposal in a company called Rubicon Global. The Crusaders, as the name suggests, are really focused not so much on the immediate product or puzzle, uh, but they are really motivated, passionate about long-term vision and long-term mission, uh, if you will. Uh, these are folks that are almost entrepreneurs by accident. In other words, having a business for them is a means to a much broader end. And in some cases, that, that involves visions about the improving the world in some way. And then the last member of this quartet is what we call the captain. And unlike the other three, captains tend to be focused more and fascinated more on the possibility of the team that they surround themselves with. Uh, if, in contrast to the driver who tends to be very me-centric, a captain is more we-centric in terms of how they manage uh, and lead. Um, Hewlett-Packard, both, both the founders of Hewlett-Packard would have been good examples of this, uh, but so too a fellow like Jack Ma, who's the uh, founder of, of uh, Alibaba. In each case, all four of these builder types are differentiated based on their motivation to be an entrepreneur, how they make decisions, in other words, whether they tend to be fact-based decision makers or rely more on their gut, and then how they manage and the style with which they lead their organizations. Okay, so you you name the four different types. What if I am having a hard time identifying which type I am? Is there some type of a quiz that I can take? You know, because there are plenty of personality quizzes out there. What what can I do? Absolutely, absolutely. Well, the easiest thing to do uh, is to go to our website www.builtforgrowth.com, 
And on there, you will see a 10-question builder personality discovery quiz. That 10 questions is the result of the algorithm that Chris and his team developed at his former a company called Rosetta, which was one of the largest digital marketing companies in the world before he sold it a few years ago. And the algorithm's magic is that it, it took what started off as 100-plus questions that we administered to uh, many, many, many successful entrepreneurs around the world, and it allowed us to distill those down to just the 10 questions that your listeners will find when they go to the website. It'll take about two minutes, and out of that, you'll get a sense of how uh, our methodology uh, would would type you, recognizing that uh, each person, obviously in a personality, it's not a straitjacket. So it may be that you are, in fact, a blend or a hybrid uh, between two different types. But the primary thing is to is to uh, begin to identify what your default personality type is, because that's the one you tend to return to time and time again. So now, John, why is that important to know which of these personalities you are as a, as a well, business for, owner? Sure. Well, for several reasons. Uh, first and foremost, as I indicated just in, in your own example, um, understanding yourself can give you a better ability just on a personal level to anticipate the kinds of things that you're likely to be quite good at because they play to your default strengths. And those things that uh, might cause you more difficulty and around which you might want to think about either hiring somebody or asking for some additional perspective or or assistance uh, to deal with. And each of those four types has its own combination, its own pattern of gifts and gaps. And there are different strategies associated with what you do about each of those things. So first is that back to that know thyself uh, message that I indicated earlier. But secondly, uh, you know, there's no such word as solopreneurship in the, in the, uh, in the dictionary. Hmm. Usually entrepreneurs need to interact with uh, other resources in order to get their visions achieved. So when it comes to hiring people, understanding yourself also gives you an insight into figuring out what kinds of people are most likely to complement your particular personality so that together you can get done a little bit more than the two of you could independently. And that starts with a co-founder potentially, but it also extends to the rest of your management team. And as you build your organization, it directly imprints on the culture of the company itself, uh, which for most companies really is one of their primary competitive uh, advantages. Third, it's the question of how do you get investors or executive support if you tend to be working on entrepreneurial activities from within an established company. Finding an alignment with investors and backers who have your interests at heart but also are willing to be kind of steadfast allies. Some investors work with certain kinds of entrepreneurial types very well and not so well with others. So in all of those cases, not to mention the customer example that you brought up earlier, Understanding your personality and how it fits with these different resources that you need is really the name of the game. There's a movement that you may be familiar with, Lean Startup, uh, that was started by a colleague of mine at, at, at Berkeley, Steve Blank, and it's been popularized in another book by Eric Ries. The, the, the real mantra of, of Lean Startup is what's known as product market fit. And one way to think about our book, Built for Growth, is the question of founder or builder fit with customers, with team, 
and with investors. So give us some more examples, if you would. You mentioned Steve Jobs, you mentioned Ben and Jerry's, and uh, maybe some examples of, of how they've uh, responded a little differently. You, you mentioned uh, briefly the dynamic challenges that they have. So uh, maybe some examples of how they've responded differently to those. Sure. Let me give you an example on the, on the driver uh, side first. Um, there's a, uh, I, I mentioned that these folks are very fixated by, by, by product. Um, there's a builder that we interview in the book, a fellow named Ben Weiss, who's the founder of a new beverage company. Uh, called Buy, B-A-I. Um, and if you visit the Buy headquarters, you will notice that uh, people in the in the headquarters are wearing something around their neck. And you look a little bit closer, and on that is a number. And your number would be different from my number, and our number would be different from the third person working next to us. On that number is the number of cases of Buy beverage that we each individually have committed to help sell this year. Now, that's product identification. That is, that is fixation on getting the product out the door. And it's been extraordinarily successful. These folks just sold their business for over a billion dollars to their largest distributor. Now, in contrast, you look at uh, somebody like a crusader. Crusaders often sometimes have difficulty with the hard conversations it takes when somebody isn't quite working out the way you would, you would like them to. Um, there's a fellow that we interviewed, a founder of one of the largest construction companies in the country, a guy named Angelo Pizzagallo. And he and his brother started that company. And they had a very simple idea about hiring people. They said, we don't want to hire somebody that we don't want to have breakfast with. And sure enough, mm. they built their team around people they wanted to have breakfast with. And in some cases, they actually interviewed folks over breakfast. But Angelo shared with us, as the business got larger and larger, they began to realize that just because somebody was great to have breakfast with doesn't mean they're necessarily going to be great to on the job, to have the kind of skill set that was needed. And it was difficult, as it often is for crusaders, to separate a commitment to the vision uh, and a likability with the kind of supervision that it takes and sometimes tough accountability to weed out folks that just are not capable of performing. Uh, I'll give you an example on the on the Explorer side. I, I mentioned Brian O'Kelly, the, the founder of AppNexus. Brian's first appetite is this puzzle-solving business, yet he now is a CEO of one of the unicorn kinds of companies, these companies that are valued at over a billion dollars. Brian periodically, to use his phrase, goes ninja. And what he means by that is that he steps out of his role as the CEO in order to work directly with a smaller team of engineers together working on the next big platform or the next big technology solution for the company. Now, that's how he deals with it, because he wants to stay close to the problems that his company is solving, and he doesn't want to get bogged down with some of the other responsibilities associated with running a very, very large a company. And then finally, just to round it out, uh, captains, as I indicated earlier, are more about the we. They tend to deal with issues and opportunities in building their businesses around empowerment and, and really facilitating the talents around them. 
um, since we just finished the NBA finals and, and uh, fortunately uh, my home team won, uh, there's probably <laughs> no better example uh, of, of a captain kind of, of leader than Steve Kerr is the coach of the Golden State Warriors. Um, because how captains go at their job is less about them and more about how they can create a culture that brings out the best of the people around them. Now, none of those four have, as I said earlier, a monopoly on a formula here. Each one adapts it and applies their own personality very, very differently, but each can be successful. And that's actually one of the nice messages uh, of our book, uh, that, that you don't have to be one, any one particular type. You can be yourself, just recognize how to leverage that as best you can. So the example that you just shared with the CEO that uh, kind of stepped out of his normal responsibilities, worked with a smaller team, and tried mm-hmm. to work on what's next, was that an example of, of him going from a driver to being an explorer? And how how easy is it for people to maybe this maybe they're not a driver or they're not a captain, but they recognize the need to to engage in that personality? How easy is it sure. for them to do that? Well, uh, first, let me answer. Let me answer the first question. Uh, in in, in uh, Brian's case, he he remains an explorer, pure and simple. What he really did is to recognize that when the company's demands began to ask of him uh, a skill set that was really not in his sweet spot, he re- he recognized that he needed to stay close to what he was really really good at, and that's why he adapted this this approach uh, of the going ninja. But, but his strategy is what Chris and I have identified as one of two broad strategies that are available to people. One is the one that, that Brian uh, exemplifies, which is what we call the expert strategy. Uh, and this is a strategy that a lot of executive coaches will recommend to their clients. Uh, in other words, focus more on your strengths. Uh, recognize it's probably easier for many people to do better at what they are already good at than to really fix the things that they're not so good at. Um, and, and that makes sense. Um, and there are many examples in each of these four types of builders who have said, you know, I'm just not going to be the, 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 the decathlete, if you will. I want to be a specialist in one particular area. That's how I can bring the most value to my business. But another strategy um, is what we call the master builder strategy. And I'll use a tennis example on this one. Um, most people who play tennis uh, have a have a favorite stroke. In my case, it's a forehand. Uh, my backhand's not nearly as good. But but with practice, with teaching, with coaching, and with practice, I could develop a probably pretty good backhand. Wouldn't be as good as my forehand, but it would be serviceable. And by doing so, I would round out my repertoire on the court. Well, entrepreneurs can do that as well. You can borrow techniques and and approaches from the personality types that you don't share and make them your own. You don't become a different person in the process. You just have a broader repertoire of techniques to deal with some of the challenges associated with building a successful business. Either of those approaches can work. They can work together, um, but you're not stuck by simply replicating what you've always done in the past. 
it is possible to become a stronger builder in either or both of those two ways. Now, do you, having said that, do you feel like there is one that is more effective than the other? Because it seems like as a CEO, you would at least want to be aware of everything that's going on in your company. And I guess to a certain extent, that would kind of make you a, a jack of all trades is, is a, a term that I could use there. But is whether it's being an expert or a master builder, do you, do you feel like it's more effective to be one or the other? No, we really don't. Um, this is this is really an, an interesting thing because each of these four types are capable and have done uh, amazing things in building very large, successful businesses. It doesn't mean that they're without problems. It doesn't mean that they're without challenges. But but each of the each of these folks is capable of creating not just launching a new business and growing the new business but in actually turning it into a major enterprise. But they do that in different ways. Sometimes um, they, will, they will surround themselves with people who are really great at the things they're not great at. It's kind of what, what Chris and I call the, the elevate and delegate strategy. You know, you elevate the things you're great at, and you delegate all the things that, that either you're not as interested in or not as good at. And that can be a very wonderful formula. On the other hand, uh, you can you can also choose to basically concentrate on your own strength, and the organization begins to align around the personality at the center, uh, so that you end up with a culture that absolutely reflects uh, the personality of, of the person at the top. Now that also is a is a risk, uh, as we just saw in the case of Uber. Um, you know, Travis Kalanick, uh, the founder of Uber, the culture of Uber reflected this person's personalities, pluses and minuses. Uh, chances are they needed that kind of personality to launch a business as aggressive and brash uh, as it has been. But as we've seen more recently, uh, some of the disadvantages of his particular type uh, came to the fore, uh, and now he finds himself uh, on the sidelines of the business that he himself created. Yeah, Oh, this is so interesting. I, you know, I'm just so excited to go onto your website, uh, builtforgrowth.com, and take this personality quiz. Uh, I love, I love personality quizzes in general, but uh, I think as a business owner, this would be especially helpful for me. Uh, I'll tell you, Jeff, I, I'm, I'm thrilled that that your interest is is not unique. Uh, our book we just found out last week is now a Wall Street Journal bestseller. Oh, so, congratulations. Uh, there are, That's there are, awesome. There are many folks around the country and around the world that are sharing this fascination. Well, it's an to important topic, you, you know, because there are a lot of small business owners and new business owners, and you need to know in what direction you're taking things, and, and you need to know to be able to play to your strengths. Well, and, uh, and you, folks are the, you folks are the engine. You know, the, the entrepreneurs of the world are the engines of economic opportunity. That's what drives things. Yeah, so we absolutely. Hope that, uh, we hope that our book and some of the ideas in it will help uh, not just people currently in the entrepreneurial world like yourself, but also that, that larger group of what we would call wantrepreneurs, people that are thinking about it, considering it, and uh, hopefully we, the, one of the messages is, hey, you may find that you have some of the personality characteristics of, of folks that have been very successful in this endeavor. 
Well, John, we really appreciate your time and your insight here on the Matt Townsend Show. And congratulations again on the book. And again, if you want to take that uh, personality quiz, you can go to their website, builtforgrowth.com. He said it only takes two minutes. His name is John Danner. He advises Fortune 500 companies as well as startups in the fields of healthcare, energy, finance, enterprise services, technology, and consumer products. He also currently teaches entrepreneurship at Princeton University's Keller Center, and he is the co-author of the Wall Street Journal best-selling book, Built for Growth, How Builder Personality Shapes Your Business, Your Team, and Your Ability to Win. Very important and interesting topic. John, again, thank you so much for your time. We'll take a break. When we come back, we'll be speaking with Jerem and uh, Jordan, uh, Jerem, Jordan, Jerem and Jason on BYU Sports Nation. When we return, this is The Matt Townsend Show. It is time for one of our favorite portions of the Matt Townsend Show. We head on over to Jerem and Jason today at BYU Sports Nation to see what's going on in their program. Hello, fellas. How you doing? How we doing? Good morning. Solid. Oh, good. <laughs> I thought I'd answer the question. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> hey, I want to see if uh, th- there's a challenge that's going on at this school, and I want to see if you think that you – could fulfill this challenge. So there's a principal that is offering $100 to students to stay off of their phones, to not watch TV, uh, to not play video games one day a week for the duration of the summer break. Do you think you could do that? Oh, that would be difficult. Uh, and you're like only you're getting hundred dollars. You're getting a hundred dollars, but it's got to be once a week. So it's eleven Tuesdays during the summer break. Oh, if I was a kid and it was for a hundred dollars, <laughs> yeah, I'm an adult and for hundred dollars. That yeah. changes the game. Yeah. <laughs> I think I could do it. It would be hard to start out with, but I think I could do it. Yeah, I my brother offered. I think I want to say he offered his son and daughter, who are twins, offered them a thousand dollars. If they didn't kiss anyone until they were 18, do you think you could do that? Well, some of that's not in your control. I think that's just mean. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's just mean. That's just mean, huh? Yeah. Well, uh, how old are your kids? Uh, 14, 13, 6, and 4. Oh, my goodness. So you're getting there. I mean, you're kind of yeah, you're we're you're already darn in the close. Yeah, you're already at that stage where you're starting to panic as a parent, probably. Yeah, we're we're pretty close. <laughs> <laughs> but here's the deal: I'm not going to pay off my kids. Yeah, I mean, clearly, because if if you're willing to do all this stuff for a hundred dollars, you you probably are a little strapped for cash. Maybe I'll pay ten thousand bucks <laughs> for my kid to go on a mission. Oh wait. Oh, yeah. You will. (laughs) You're already doing that. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Well, as much as I would love to talk about the Dodgers winning again last night and hitting more home runs. Oh, and Yasiel Puig strutting around the bases, getting himself in trouble again. That guy's in love with himself, I tell (laughs) you. So, you know, there's a lot of talk about all-stars. I'm curious to know if you guys could put together an all-star team. And you, you just pick a sport, whether it's basketball, whether it's football. If you were putting together, and you probably already have some sort of a fantasy all-star team that you've put together, who would be on that team? 
Like all time in that sport? No, 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 no. Just current athletes. Oh, current. Oh, wow. Um, I mean, like I immediately go to the NBA. Yeah, like the all-time yeah. starting five in the NBA is always a fun one. Yeah, but I mean, if we're talking about current players, I mean, you're talking – so we're talking about the, the starting five in the All-Star? Yes. Okay, so we got you've got LeBron. LeBron James. LeBron I have, James. I have LeBron James at point guard. Then I have LeBron James at shooting guard. Here's the the best part about it is you can pick <laughs> any of these guys and you can move them around at any position for the most part. But you LeBron would be one of them. Steph Curry would be one of them. Sebastian Telfair. No, Sebastian Telfair. By the way, he's been in trouble. He's been in the news lately. I I know. Uh, I'd probably have Shandon Anderson. Stop it with forward. stop. Shannon Anderson has not Drum, played in the league Drum in like Kersey. 10 years. I'd, I'd probably have Mark Bryant at center. Mark Bryant at center. Wow. Going in the well, way back machine here, Jeff. He's going back like 15 years. Maybe you know, Sam Perkins? Man, if, if, Dr., if Dr. Matt were here with us right now, he could probably, he'd probably point out that you guys might have some issues. LeBron James and Steph Curry are by far like the top two that you would have on any all-star team in the NBA for yeah. sure. Kevin Durant is on there. Vern Fleming. Russell Westbrook. James Harden. I mean, those yeah. are the guys that you're... James, James Corden? James Harden. Oh, okay. James Corden's not in shape for this. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, that's a pretty good team. Pretty good team you've got there. Although, win some ball games. Yeah. I would love to see your two different teams square up against one another because you clearly don't agree on you some You can't of handle Buck Williams. Well, it's two, di- it's two different styles. I mean, we're talking about two different generations of, of, who's gonna guard of ball. Da- who's going to guard Dale Davis? Hmm. Who's going to remember Dale Davis? <laughs> this guy. <laughs> so you're probably not talking about all-star teams on your show today. What are you talking about on uh, BYU Sports Nation? In the spirit of that same convo, it's NBA Draft Day. Yes. Will Eric Mika get drafted? What are the experts saying? And if not, what... Next, we'll discuss on the show today. Also, Luke Worthington uh, has probably been about three weeks or so since he returned home from his mission to Chile. Mission trip. Yes, his mission trip where he worked out for two hours, or for, excuse me, for two years. Um, <laughs> <laughs> because that's what everybody thinks you do yeah. on a mission, apparently. 16-hour days, they'll get He's going to join us in the studio, and we'll talk about coming home and, and his expectations for this upcoming season for BYU basketball. And Greg Rubel will join us as well. He'll tell us a cool thing about Canada. It's a running uh, thing we and have on the show. And that's E-H. A cool a, thing a about cool Canada. A cool thing about Canada. Oh, nice. And, and he has uh, some uh, BYU Football Media Day plans. There's a program on BYU Radio with Greg Rubel, so we'll talk about that. Coming hey, up. have you guys discussed the fact that Ron Howard is taking over as director of the Han Solo film? <gasps> no! That's, that's yes. Insert Darth Vader. No! No, this is good. Uh, After maybe. they fired the original directors, this is pretty good to get was, that kind of a director. To it was the Lego Movie guys. It was. It was yeah. sad. This is a bummer. You know what? I I would appreciate it more maybe if Ron Howard was narrating. <laughs> now for the story of, yeah. That yeah, like be. his Arrested <laughs> Development. Here's a story of a smuggler and yeah. his furry friend. <laughs> There's a real issue if you're firing the directors in the middle of production. Like, they're shooting, aren't they? Yeah, they're, they're in the middle sh- of sh- yes, they're in the middle they're of shooting. shooting, and they've got rid of the director. They've got that's the not, guy in the che- good. They've got the guy in the Chewbacca costume waiting for a director, and he is getting hot. Yeah, that thing is <laughs> boiling lava hot. <laughs> well, uh, I guess it's good that he's directing. Um, thanks for the good news, guys, and make sure uh, that you spend some time tonight watching those Dodgers. I'm telling you, I'm telling you.
<laughs> All right. Have a good show, you guys. We'll talk to you tomorrow. Yeah, Oh, as much as I love Ron Howard, and I do, it is kind of weird to switch directors right in the middle and such a drastic change, too. You would think maybe they'd find somebody with a similar style. These are the guys that brought us the Lego movie, 21 and 22 Jump Street, and then the guy that brought us A Beautiful Mind and Apollo 13. He's done some lighter fare, of course, but... uh, Interesting well, choice. This is why you're firing your directors, right? Like you wouldn't you wouldn't want to fire two guys and then bring on just the same style of exactly thing. If if you disagreed well, with them so fundamentally about the direction the movie's going, then you want to bring on a guy that's going to take the movie in a different direction, right? Well, and another point to consider is Ron Howard doesn't need Star Wars. Oh no. I'm so I'm curious as to why he's doing it. You know? As a favor to a franchise that he loves. I, I I guess I guess that's I guess so. Anyway, oh, I hope it I hope it's good. I'm sure Disney will find a way to make it good. Ron Howard's a good director, but uh, hopefully he can still it with all the humor that I was looking forward to with uh, Chris Miller and Phil Lord at the helm. Disney will find a way to make it appealing to a mass audience. It's what they do best. And cash in. Mm-hmm. Yep. Anyway, as you know, we like to uh, we like to end each show with our hero story of the day. And if you hear me <laughs> rifling through these papers, because I couldn't find it until now. Anyway, a normal day at the pool turned into a daring rescue when a boy and his mother jumped into action to save a toddler's life. Surveillance video shows children jumping, swimming, and playing in the pool at lakes uh, at San Marcos Apartments in Tallahassee, Florida. And no one appeared to notice as a three-year-old boy among them began struggling in the water and started to sink below the surface. Eventually, Colby Heard, nine years old, uh, saw the boy and swam over to help. Colby, who has autism, picked up the tot and brought him to the closest adult. I just wish that he came back up because it was just a sad moment, Colby said. The boy was plucked out of the water with a crowd gathered with several people around the pool calling for help. Running from the other side of the pool was Colby's mother, Severia, who was a nurse and trained in CPR. Oh, thank goodness. I dropped everything, she said. After three minutes of resuscitation attempts, the boy regained consciousness. At first, Severia did not know it was her own son who retrieved the boy from the pool. The duo unknowingly worked together to save the boy's life. After the incident, Severia informed her son that if it wasn't for him, no one would have known what was happening. Man... What a hero, what a hero, and a boy with autism. That is just great. And uh, man, pay attention when your kids are out there swimming, especially your little ones that probably cannot swim on their own. Man, that really is close to my heart, as I have a three-year-old. So uh, yeah, and they're about to take some swimming lessons. Anyway, we can all be heroes, and it really boils down to just pay attention, be more observant, because there are people out there that are going to need you. And uh, if you don't act in a timely manner, tragedy could strike. Anyway, but this is a happy story. The boy was safe, and uh, everything turned out all right. That's going to do it for the Matt Townsend Show today. We'll be back tomorrow with more insights, more fun, when we return. Until tomorrow.